With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recorded, Recorded live. live. All right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is May 5th, 2015, and that makes it Tuesday. It's about nine minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific time. If that's all true where you're at, we are, in fact, live. And being live, that means you can participate in the show. Go to TheAmericanVoice.com or AmericanVoiceRadio.com. When you get there, look for the chat link. You'll see it. It's, well, it says chat, and you click on that, and it'll uh, give you some easy instructions, which amount to uh, pick a name, pick a password, put in your email, and you're good to go. And then you'll be in the chat room, which means you can ask questions, make comments, I'll see them, or you can just... uh, Chat with the other folks in there. You don't have to participate in the show. You can also call in 855-566-3738. 855-566-3738. can also, there's one other way, if you have Yahoo Instant Messenger, the screen name is AVRN Talk. If you have Yahoo Instant Messenger, oh, and by the way, if you use Yahoo Mail, you have Yahoo Instant Messenger, you can uh, access that, and that comes straight to me. See, if you talk to me in the chat room, everybody else in the chat room gets to see what you're saying. If you don't want that, oh, and if you call in, everybody gets to hear what you're saying. But if you just want to say something to me, you can do so on the Yahoo Instant Messenger. All right, so there we have that. Let's get to some things and stuff I got. Man, I got a screen full of things here. So let's see where to start. Let's start with this. How about the 35 richest people, uh, members of the 114th Congress? How about that? Yeah, the 35 richest. Okay, so at number 35... We have Representative Dave Bratt. Okay? He has an average net worth of $609,000. He's a former World Bank consultant and economics professor at Randolph Macon College. Okay, so he's a Republican for Virginia. That seems like it was a kind of a almost a real job. Next is Representative Mimi Walters. She's a Republican from California, and sure, her average net worth is $715,500, and she's a former stockbroker. Can't call that honest work, but I guess it's a real job. 
Then we have at number 33, Representative David Young, a Republican from Iowa. Average net worth, 767 to 500. He's the former chief of staff to former Kentucky Senator Jim Bunning and Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. Well, I can see somebody being worth $767,000, I suppose, if you were the former chief of staff to those two senators. Although, you must have been saving your money pretty good, huh? What does a chief of staff pull down anyway? Hundred grand a year or so? Hmm. All right, well. See, I don't like to see really rich guys who have never done anything except government work. Number 32 is Representative Martha McSally. She's a rep- uh, uh, Republican from Arizona. Her average net worth is 935500 Now, this is curious. Okay, this makes me wonder. $935,500. That's almost a million dollars. Okay, she's almost a millionaire. And she probably is because when you read the uh, thing before this, they say, well, look, you know, there's lots of stuff we, we can't, we don't have access to. But she's a former United States Air Force colonel. You know, I didn't realize the Air Force was paying their colonels so much. So if you can go into the Air Force and become a colonel, you can be a millionaire? Is that right? Or do you have to be doing something else? Then there's Representative Bonnie Coleman. She is a Democrat from New Jersey. And she her average net worth is a million dollars. Now, see, this is disturbing. So far, other than the colonel and the uh, chief of staff... Everybody else pretty much had jobs, you know, whether you like them or not. This one here, though, a Democrat from New Jersey, worth a million dollars, has a long history of public service and established the first office of civil rights in the New Jersey Department of Transportation in 1974. And she's got a million bucks. wonder where she made all that money from her little public service paycheck. Really? Then we have Representative Glenn S. Grothman. He's a Republican from Wisconsin. 1.1 million. He served in the Wisconsin State Legislature after receiving his law degree in 1993. Hmm. So up until 1993, he was in school. Then we have Representative Mark Tayaki. He's a Democrat from Hawaii. He's worth $1.1 million. And his claim to fame is he was a former member of the Hawaiian Army National Guard. Gee, they must really pay good in the Hawaiian Army National Guard, huh? He's a millionaire. Representative Kenneth R. Buck, a Republican from Colorado, $1.2 million. He's a former attorney who worked on the Iran-Contra investigation as a prosecutor for the U.S. Department of Justice. Yeah, how'd that work out? Representative Gary Palmer, a Republican from Alabama, $1.2 million. Former Chief Development Officer of the Alabama Policy Institute. That's a conservative think tank. 
Then we have Representative Brendan Boyle, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, $1.3 million. He's a graduate of the Harvard University, John F. Kennedy School of Government, and a member of the Pennsylvania State Legislature. Wow. So you went to college and became a member of the state legislature. So where'd the $1.3 million come from? Representative Ryan K. Zinke, Republican from Montana, $1.4 million. He was a former commander of the U.S. Navy SEALs. Apparently, you know, commanders and colonels in the United States military really pull down the coin these days, I guess. Representative Evan Jenkins, rep, uh, Republican from West Virginia, $1.4 million. Former executive director of the West Virginia State Medical Association and business law professor at Marshall University. Hmm. Representative Crescent Hardy, Republican from Nevada, $1.4 million public. Now, get this, former public works director in Mesquite, Nevada. Hmm, public works director in Mesquite, Nevada, $1.4 million. Must have won the lottery or something. Maybe he was gambling and hit it big in Vegas. Representative Carlos Cubello, Republican from Florida, $1.4 million. Founder of the government and public relations firm Capital Gains. See, now I can see where this guy made $1.4 bucks. Because public relations firms, man, they pull in the bucks, man. Senator Ben, ben Sassy, Republican from New uh, ne- uh, Nebraska, uh, he's at 1.5 million. He's a former advisor to U.S. Department of Homeland Security and former president of Midland University. Representative Mike Bishop, Republican from Michigan, 1.7 million. Former Chief Legal Officer for International Bank Card Corporation. Representative Barbara Comstock. Representative from Virginia. 2.2 million. See, we're going up pretty fast here. Former Chief Counsel of the House Government Reform and Oversight Committee. Really? So you were a government lawyer and you need 2.2 million bucks. Yeah, okay. Representative Brian Babin, Republican from Texas, $2.3 million. He's a former captain in the United States Air Force and owner of a dental office. Senator Dan Sullivan, $2.7. He was the former Attorney General for Alaska. Yeah. Former Attorney General in one of the more corrupt states in the Union, let me tell you. And he's got 2.7 million bucks. I wonder where it came from. Representative Brad Ashford, Democrat from Nebraska, 2.9 million. He was a former judge on the Nebraska Court of Industrial Relations. Boy, judges must rake it in there, huh? Representative French Hill, Republican from Arkansas, he's worth $5 million. Founder of Board Delta Trust and Banking Corporation, acquired by Simmons First Bank last year. Now remember, it's not so much the money with this guy. He's a banker. That's who you want in Congress, really. And we have Representative Debbie Dingle. 
She's a Democrat from Michigan, 6.2 million. Former vice president of the Government Motors Foundation, also related to owners of Fisher Body, a division of Government Motors. So isn't that sweet that Government Motors has its very own representative in the House of Representatives? Isn't that good? That's nice, isn't it? Representative Daniel Milton Newhouse, rep- uh, Republican from Washington, 6.4 million. He's the former head of Washington State's Agriculture Department. Big money in agriculture, you know. Representative John Lee Radcliffe, Republican from Texas, 7.9 million. Former United States Attorney of the Eastern District of Texas. Yeah, lots of money in that. Senator Thom Tillis, Republican from North Carolina, 8.6 million. He was uh, a former partner at consulting firm Pricewater. House Coopers. I'm surprised he doesn't have more than 8.6 million. Representative Ron Blum, Rod Blum, uh, Republican from Iowa, 14.7 million. Former CEO of Eagle Point Software and owner of Digital Canal, a software company. Representative Gwen Graham, a Democrat from Florida, she's worth 15.5 million. And she trained as an attorney and then worked in law before becoming a school administrator at Leon County. Wow. Decided to give up that whole law business because there's not enough money in the law business. But you can make $15.5 million as a school administrator? Folks, uh... Senator Mike Rounds, Republican from South Dakota, $16.1 million. He's a partner of insurance and real estate firm, Fisher Rounds & Associates. And let's see here. Number seven is Buddy Carter, rep, uh, Republican from Georgia, $17.6 million. He owns a pharmacy. Rick W. Allen, Republican from Georgia, $19.6 million. He's the founder of a construction company, R.W. Allen & Associates. Representative Bruce Poliquin, Republican from Maine, $23.8 million. He was a former employee of Harris Trust Savings Bank and state treasurer of Maine. So you're an employee of a trust savings bank and a state treasurer of Maine, and you got twenty, almost $24 million bucks in your pocket. Senator David Perdue, Republican Georgia, $31.7 million, former SVP at Sara Lee Corporation, Haggard Clothing, and Reebok, and former CEO of Dollar General. Representative Don Beyer, Democrat from Virginia, $48.7 million. Uh, Beyer and his brother are the owners of multiple car dealerships in Northern Virginia. Ooh, a used car salesman. <laughs> I have some of that in there. Representative Thomas MacArthur, Republican from New Jersey, $49.3 million. He's the former chairman and CEO of York Risk Services Group. And the richest one, they say, is Representative Dave Trott, a Republican from Michigan, $205 million. Uh, he made his millions as chairman and CEO of Trot & Trot, a law firm. 
that represents banks and lenders in home foreclosures. So there you have it, folks, just like you, aren't they? I mean, all those people are just like you, right? That's why you voted for them, isn't it? Because they're just like you. They've got your same values as you do, huh? Right? Uh-huh. Well, here we go. Here's your federal government at work. You know OSHA, right? You've heard of OSHA. Anybody who's had a job doing anything has probably heard of OSHA. When I worked at the dealership, uh, well, I was detail manager, and I had to deal with a lot of OSHA stuff because we dealt with a lot of chemicals in, uh, you know, auto detailing. And, uh, boy, OSHA, man, you know, they can be kind of uh, sticklers on some things. And, you know, not necessarily bad because, uh, you know, they were somewhat dangerous chemicals, and it's good that they had rules. Uh, but now, they're not just about that or hard hats or safer machinery or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, they have formed an alliance with a national social justice advocacy organization for transgender people. That's right. And they're going to start promoting gender-appropriate restroom access. That's right. I mean, are you kidding me? So OSHA is going to start now making sure that the freak transgenders have access to a bathroom where they work or else the business will be shut down. You know, you know what? The, do you think this is getting a little out of hand? Uh, just a little, huh? Well, you think that's bad. How about this? You know, who let this happen? You know, you, you've got to wonder, who let this happen here? Uh, meanwhile, Obama's saying, well, congressmen aren't allowed to read the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership documents because it's secret and uh, trade is national security and we've got to be careful about China and uh, blah, 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 blah. He's lying. Because if he gave a damn about national security, if he cared about China in any way, shape, or form, what I'm about to tell you would have never happened. The Navy now needs new servers for their Aegis cruisers and destroyers. Why are they going to have to spend all this money and basically take these cruisers and destroyers offline while they upgrade them? Well, because the Chinese purchased uh, a part of IBM. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah, somebody allowed IBM to sell something to the Chinese, like their business. The Navy needs new servers for its upgraded Aegis combat system after the current IBM line was sold to Chinese computer maker Lenovo. You know Lenovo, the one that has been identified to have spyware on it? Yes. From the manufacturer, the $2.1 billion sale closed in October and made Lenovo the number three server maker in the world. IBM shedding its server business creates a security concern for the U.S. Navy, which included the company's X86 Blade Center HT server in its Aegis technical insertion. The T112 hardware upgrades, along with the Advanced Capability Build, 12 software upgrades, compose the Aegis Baseline 9 combat system upgrade that combines a ballistic missile defense capability with anti-war, anti-war, 
air warfare improvements for the Navy's guided missile cruiser and destroyer fleets. The Department of Homeland Homeland Defense identified security concerns with the IBM Blade Center sale and placed restrictions on federal government procurement of Lenovo Blade Center server products, Navy spokesman Dale Eng told USNI News. Well, the major military concern is the servers could be compromised through routine maintenance or the information could be accessed remotely by Chinese government agents. What's to worry about? The Chinese are our pals, aren't they? I mean, for God's sakes, they make iPhones there. And everybody loves iPhones. Everybody loves the homo company Apple, don't you? Nobody cares that, uh, you know, they're utilizing Chinese slave labor and making their employees so miserable they want to jump off the roof at lunch hour. They had concerns, but they allowed the sale to go through anyway, didn't they? Now, to me, that is incredibly stupid, or it's an act of treason. Nevertheless, it's difficult to believe an administration that would allow something like that to happen to say, oh, we can't tell you. We can't tell you what the trade agreement's about because of national security, don't you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a trade agreement's national security issue, but, uh, you know, missile systems, you know, selling them to the Chinese, the uh, software, that's no big deal. That's fine. That's fine. Don't worry about that. Unbelievable. Well, I'll get to this after the break. Louis Gomer, he's a, a Texas congressman. He's got some, uh, well, he's got some concerns about uh, Jade Helm. People in Texas are starting to get upset about this. I don't think I'm hearing anything about anybody anywhere else, like New Mexico or Arizona or, uh, you know, any of the other places that they're doing it. But Texas, it's not sitting so well with them. Anyway, we'll be back in a few. Push it too hard. 
shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
back. This is the Frank Report. It's May 5th, 2015. It's Tuesday. It's about 8.38 and a half out here on the Pacific Time Coast. And if that's all true where you're at, we are, in fact, live. You can call in 855-566-3738. 855-566-3738. You will get on the air that way. You can also go to the chat room at AmericanVoiceRadio.com or TheAmericanVoice.com. Look for the chat link. It's just a text link. Chat. Click it. You're in there. Uh, AVRN Talk, if you have Yahoo Instant Messenger. Anyhow, so there you go. Oh, yes, the uh, Stump the Room. Well, we're one and one. Room got the second song, which was an old uh, Jefferson Airplane song, Bringing Me Down. I played that before. And uh, the first song was a pretty popular song, Pushing Too Hard. It was by The Seeds. Okay, popular song. Not so much popular band, but anyway. There we go. Let's get back to all the, uh, oh boy, the news. Where did I leave off? Oh yes, Louis Gomart. He is the uh, congressman from Texas who has a uh, some questions about Jade Helm. But, of course, the military says, ah, don't worry about it. Oh, there's nothing going on here. There's nothing wrong here. Everything's fine. Nothing to look at here. You know, I don't remember them doing anything like this in the 70s. Why are they doing it now? You know, the military is clearly expanding their presence within the continental United States. That is not their job. That is not what they're supposed to do. You want to expand your visibility in the United States, do it on the southern border. So something's up. I don't know what's up. I don't know if it's martial law. I don't know if it's getting ready for something. I don't know what they're doing. All I know is they weren't doing this in the 70s. They weren't doing it in the 80s, okay? But they're doing it now. If it wasn't okay then, or if it was such a great idea now, why weren't they doing it then? Hmm? U.S. Special Operations Command is preparing to launch a five-month multi-state exercise across private and public land to prepare Army Special Forces for threats anywhere in the world. Sure they are. Anywhere in the world, right. You know, you've got to wonder, what kind of a moron? Private land? What, what kind of an idiot exactly does it take to agree to this? Oh, sure, go ahead and use my private land for your little military, uh, you know, takeover of the United States. Sure, go ahead. Oh, no problem. You're just planning. You're just training to take over the United States. You're not really going to be doing it. Sure, that's fine. What, what exactly kind of a moron does it take to agree to that? Over the past few weeks, my office has been inundated with calls or Referring to Jade Helm, 15 military exercise scheduled to take place between July 15th and September 15th, 2015. Hmm, 15, 15, 15. Gomert said in a Tuesday statement, This military practice has some concern that the U.S. Army is preparing for modern-day martial law. Certainly, I can understand these concerns. 
When leaders within the current administration believe that major threats to the country include those who support the Constitution, our military veterans, and even cling to guns or religion, patriotic Americans have reason to be concerned, Gohmert wrote. The congressman took particular issue with the layout and labels of the Pentagon map for the exercise. Once I observed the map depicting hostile, permissive, and uncertain states and locations, I was rather appalled that the hostile areas amazingly have a Republican majority, cling to their guns and religion, and believe in the sanctity of the United States Constitution. Gomer called on the Pentagon to change the map the names on the map, and said the tone of the exercise needs to be completely revamped so the federal government is not intentionally practicing war against its own states. And that is exactly what is going on, folks. You know what? It, and yeah, it's about you. You know, sure, it, it is. It's about you. But it's about the federal government conducting war against the states again you know they did it before they'll do it again this this federal government I'm telling you is a foreign entity that is bent on overthrowing the constitutional well whatever's left of it constitutional government. All right, how about this? You know, I mean, hey, hey, yeah, okay, we got Jade Helm, you know, the Army's out there practicing to take over the United States. So, uh, all right, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe the military's telling the truth and they're just all, it's an innocent, just a play thing. Well, we're just practicing, don't worry. Okay, how about this? The Department of Homeland Security has scaled back the scope of requirements for what would have been a nationwide license plate scanning effort. Hmm? The new system, announced last month, will compile license plate records from at least 25 states instead of all states. Wow. Wow. License plate readers, folks. You know, I remember there was a day in the United States when it was not admissible for a police officer to run your plates, find out something was expired or wrong, and then pull you over because you weren't allowed to run the plates until you witnessed the driver do something to make you pull them over. And, of course, how did this all start, folks? The same way it starts so many times. Oh, well, the police have to do that because they're about to pull over somebody in an unknown situation. So they have to do a check to make sure there's no warrants and nothing dangerous for them. It's for police safety. And now they're just randomly running plates and they're not even doing it with the guise of police safety. You know why? Because that was just a pretext to get you to let them start doing it. Because once you let these people start doing something, it doesn't matter what good reason they come up for for doing it. 
they will end up doing it more and more and more and more and more. It's the give them an inch, they'll take a yard thing. It's not a joke, okay? So, here we have these guys down in Texas who decide they're Muslim and uh, they don't like people drawing cartoons of their false prophet. Yeah, okay. So, they roll on up, uh, you know, to Texas and get themselves killed. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, that's what happens there. But this, these aren't just two guys who decided to become Muslim and roll on up to Texas and uh, get in a shootout. Mm-mm-mm-mm. No, 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 no. The attorney who once defended one of the two men who opened fire at a Draw Muhammad event on Texas on Sunday says she was shocked to learn that he was involved in the attack. She says she has represented a number of people charged with terrorism-related crimes. Some of them are in the worst of the worst, but Elton Simpson was one of the good ones, she said. Maybe he had maybe he had a nice butt or something, man. Maybe that's why she thought he was one of the good ones. Yeah. Oh, oh, wait. Here's why he was one of the good ones. Because he was always respectful to me and my staff. Did everything he was supposed to do. You get in the picture, folks? So as long as you're polite and you do everything they tell you to do, you're one of the good guys. (laughs) Yeah, except, uh, well, she kept them from going to prison in 2011. Got him probation, and uh, now, hey, he runs up to Texas and gets in a shootout, gets himself killed. Yeah, well, maybe more Muslims ought to think about doing that. Get yourself a gun, roll on into Texas, and, uh, hey, point your gun at a cop. See what happens. I'm not a big fan of Texas, uh, but I know Texas well enough to know not to be going down there pulling guns on cops. Yeah, you might want to try that in New York or L.A. or somewhere like that before you, uh, you know, get yourself a little practice at it before you go to Texas. (laughs) because <laughs> they're not going to give you any quarter down there. Okay, so here's some uh, encouraging news. Yeah. You know, anything that... Any any article that starts out describing something as the cauldrons of hell has to be good, huh? I mean, really. Yes, cauldrons of hell created at Fukushima. Now, is this some crackpot conspiracy theorist? No. This is coming from an energy company official. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah, this is getting better and better, man. Anyway, cauldrons of hell created at Fukushima, says an energy company official. Disaster is reoccurring each day at the plant, Japan nuclear expert. We have a crisis of a severity that can't be imagined anywhere else. People have been abandoned and thrown away. The prime minister said Fukushima had been brought to a close. My reaction on hearing his words was, stop kidding. 
Reality is, through four years, though four years have passed, the accident has not yet been brought to a close at all. What is the situation within the core? How much has melted? Where is the fuel exactly? We don't know. This is an accident of severity that cannot be imagined anywhere else. As you can see, we are facing a very, very difficult situation. The only choice that we have open to us is some to somehow keep the situation from getting worse. Wow. Golly, that's encouraging, isn't it? Not. Well, you know, here's something about the media keep propagandizing for Hillary Clinton. Yeah, no joke, huh? I mean, really, come on. This is a serial criminal that should have been in prison 40 years ago. And she shouldn't be getting out for another 20 or 30 years. But hey, there she is going uh, to the White House, she thinks. In three weeks of multi-format politicking, roundtable speeches, fundraiser, mile markers, Clinton has seized the Democratic banner and run with it, pitching voters on progressive priorities from reproductive rights to income inequality to climate change. The underlying assumption is that the record of Hillary Clinton indicates that her campaign rhetoric reflects accurately both her real beliefs and the policies that she has instituted her political career. But this is all false, okay? She's just full of crap. That's what Hillary Clinton is. Just one big bag of crap that keeps talking. Okay? She just lies, 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 and says whatever she thinks the crowd wants to hear, and she doesn't care. Okay? She doesn't care. I don't think, the, I don't think she really believes in anything, to tell you the truth, except Hillary Clinton needs to be president. I think that's all she believes in. Then again, that's just me. Let's see what the caller thinks. Go ahead, caller. Hey, Frank. Jay in Washington. Hey, Jay in Washington. How's it going? It's going well, Frank. How are you? Good. And happy belated birthday, by the way. Um, it's. Uh, I hope you had a. I hope you had a good day. Yeah, it was fine. Thanks. You're talking about Hillary Clinton now, uh, and that's why I called in. I something. <laughs> I read something a couple of days ago, and it was about Lance Armstrong. Uh, the government's going after him again. They now want to subpoena, and they have subpoenaed his girlfriend to come to a deposition. Her lawyer's been trying to get her out of it, and they're just not, they're not relenting. They want to know. They want to know. And there, there's no definition of who, this, who the government agency is or who the, who the people in the government are. It's just the government, right? They want to know what he said. They, they, they want to know what he said to her. And there was also something. He was involved in a, apparently in a car vehicle kind of accident in Colorado and Aspen last year, whatever, year before, okay? Now, it was a horrible accident. Horrible. He, he hit two parked cars, okay? But then he didn't take the blame. He, he had his girlfriend take the blame because he kind of wanted to stay out of the public eye. So anyway, the government's Didn't, didn't Bruce Jenner guy. just have a car wreck, too? He's a homo, though, so, well, no, he's, he's different than a homo. He's... He's something different. He's worse He's sort than of a homo. homo. I don't know what you would call him. But here's the point I'm trying to make. And I called both of my senators today and my U.S. representative, Denny Heck. Thank you. That's <laughs> my daughter. Sorry. Uh, I lost my train. Okay, so I called both of my senators and my U.S. representative, and I, I asked them. I said, I, I want to know 
what, who, what authority, who, what senator is going after Lance Armstrong? Lance Armstrong, somebody who cares about him. When you have someone like, like you say, Hillary Clinton, who is a, I can't even think of a, a word without being too vulgar on American Voice Radio. So let's just leave it at Hillary Clinton. Enough said. Why aren't they going after her? Why aren't they going after Hillary Clinton? She has now refused to testify again. She's, she's already said it. She's not going to go in front of any Benghazi hearings for a second. She's not going to do it. I'm just a little bit concerned and confused here, Frank. The government's going to go after Lance Armstrong still? And oh, wait a minute. Hillary Clinton? I thought, Hillary Clinton was, I thought Hillary Clinton was going to testify. Now she's not again? I saw a headline, and I didn't read the article, this was a few days ago, Frank, where she flat out said she's not going to go in front of the committee again. Now, I may be wrong, but that's what I read maybe a couple of days ago. Oh, and it was on the it. same day that I read that Lance Armstrong thing. And now, look, I'm just a truck driver, and I get outraged, and I, and I ran. But am I making a good point? I think I'm making a good point. I would like to know what senator thinks it's so important, Frank, to go after Lance Armstrong for hitting a couple of parked cars in Aspen and wants to know what his girlfriend knows. What did he tell her? About what? What did he tell her about what? What did Hillary Clinton do? Well, you know what? I'd say, Frank, far worse. I agree with you. I agree with you, but I also have advice for people out there that as much as, as you know, despicable as Hillary Clinton is, uh... Sad to say, that's the world we live in, and Lance Armstrong's girlfriend needs to get her head screwed on straight and go to the deposition and say, I don't recall. I don't recall. And if she she has to say that 80 times like Hillary Clinton did last time she was in front of uh, a uh, congressional hearing, I don't recall. Yeah, sure. People can say, oh, she must be lying. She must be hiding something. She must be whatever. Who cares what they think? I don't recall. I don't recall. That's very good. I just thought I'd put that out there. You know, I mean, Uh, really, and and that doesn't just go to his girlfriend. That goes to every listener out there. If If you ever get yourself in a situation where somebody makes you testify that you don't want to testify... You know, maybe the police want your help, and you don't want to help them. You don't want to testify. Well, you can't, If <laughs> unlike Hillary Clinton, you can't just say, mm-hmm. no, I'm not showing up. You better show up, or they'll come and arrest you. But, they'll, hey. They'll, yeah, they'll, they'll show you up for you. Once you do show up, you know, my memory ain't what it used to be. I don't recall. We know you're lying. We well, know we you know. know something. We know, no, no, we know, we know. Well, then you testify, because I don't recall. There you go. That's very good. Well, if you know so much, why am I here? You know, because I don't recall. Very good points. You know, and... Uh, the second no, thing I brought up... Nobody can make you recall. Nobody can say, oh, yes, you do. Oh, no, I don't. You know, I don't recall. It worked for Hillary 80 times. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm serious, man. You know, it seems... Well, that's not that's not honest. That's not, you know... Well, listen. Honest? Where does honesty come in? If I don't want to help you... That's not in the vocabulary. You know, the government thinks that they can force you to help them. 
and they can force you to show up. I mean, they they well, can they, they will so force often, you Frank, to show up. They, what? They what? get away with it so often. They they, they you know they, the the average person succumbs to their being bullied. They're they're, they're completely what? frightened by the government. Completely frightened. So much so that they don't even care. They watch Dancing with the Stars and they don't. They just don't care. They're just completely frightened. Well, and that's the, the thing. You're not one of those people. Whoa, no, in, in no, 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 wait a minute. Don't Let's not get overboard here because, you know, I am frightened by the government. But the whole thing about being frightened is it's fine to be scared. It's fine to be frightened. But you can't let your fear and being frightened interfere with what you've got to do. <coughs> you know, I mean, I'm sure you've been in plenty of situations where you were frightened. But you still did what you had to do. You either did what you had to do, did what you were trained sure. to do, did whatever you had, whatever. You did it. And you were scared at that. Many times. <laughs> you know, Many I mean, times. you just do it. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. and, and that's what it is. Absolutely. Fear is a problem when it paralyzes you, you know, and, and just don't let that happen. It's nothing wrong with right. it. It's that you'd be crazy not to be afraid. It's a good point. It is. That You're right. That is a good point. Uh and I've and, and I have been in those situations, but I I just kind of power through it, and I just don't you know like you said I don't, I just don't let it paralyze me. Right, you just and that's what's going on. There's mass paralysis going on, and it's you know I've said it before, and it sickens me. And and I'm in you know I'm in a, obviously in a better mood tonight, mm-hmm. but sometimes I'm not, and I'm sure you get that way too. Sometimes it just really gets you down, and it. It just kind of affects you sometimes, but I try and stay out of those moves. Well, I pray and to God. You know what? Uh, you, know, you know, and the sad thing is, it's a very fine line between being brave and being a coward. You know, it's, there's not this huge absolutely. There's not this huge thing between there that oh, these but these are the cowards and these are the brave people. You know, these are the heroes and these are the cowards. You know, there's a real fine line. It could be a split second decision that makes you a coward or absolutely. makes you a hero. So you know. It's nothing to be, you know, yeah, afraid. That's one thing. But, you know, you, you've got to just do what you've got to do and let the chips fall where they are. And you can be afraid, you know. You can be afraid. I mean, sure, sure. But, you know, anyway, so I am out of time, Jay. I understand, Frank. Hey, I appreciate, uh, appreciate you taking my call, Frank. I God appreciate you calling and have a good night. Goodbye now. All right, folks, I got to go. I'll be back again tomorrow. As always, thanks for listening. We got good stuff coming up, so don't go anywhere. heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices.
studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. I'm Bobby Lee, and this is The Bobby Lee Show. Today we have with us Eustace Mullins, a lecturer, an author, author of many books, a scholar, Washington Lee University, and today we're going to be talking about several different subjects. But this particular subject is the most important for today's political venue. And Eustace has written a book called The World Order. Now, Mr. Mullins has been working since for the last 50 years to research important questions that need to be answered in relationship of middle America to the political evolution. Eustace, tell us a little bit, if you would, how you got started in being an author. Well, I had always intended to be an author, but I had intended to write uh, novels, perhaps some poems, and uh, I had absolutely no interest in any research or any nonfiction work I didn't consider that as creative writing. So I met a poet, uh, a very bohemian person named Ezra Pound, who was then incarcerated without trial on a more or less lifetime basis. And um, he asked me to look into the banking interest, the Federal Reserve System, uh, at the Library of Congress there in Washington, D.C. And I did this, and I found it to be quite an interesting story which launched me on research which continues to the present day. Now, this book, The New World Order, how does the New World Order deal with the banking interest in America and across the world? Well, you see, in studying the banking uh, system in the United States, I found it was part of an international system of banking uh, called central banks in Europe, and that the Federal Reserve System which we had here was simply an American version of the central banks they had in Europe. And I also found that these banks did not exist as some entity in some world of their own. They were an integral part of what I came to call the world order. Now, Eustace, this new world order and this banking system, I was under the impression that the banks themselves were American banks and it was the federal government that owned the banks. Are you telling me that, that our government itself doesn't own these banks? Well, our government doesn't own anything. We really don't have a government. We're just a colony of England. Hmm. How can you say that a colony of England? Well, I know that they have the Republican Party and the Democrat parties, and, and I go down to the local bank, and I can cash a dollar bill, can't I? Oh, well, you, you can go into any colony of, of Great Britain and cash a check. Uh, that doesn't mean you're in an independent nation. Would you trace for me the colony of Great Britain to the United States and the banks? If I went to, if I put a Federal Reserve note in the bank today, how can I say that that, how can you tell me that's a part of a colony of Great Britain? Well, you see, we started out as a colony of Great Britain, and then 
presumably we won political independence uh, in the uh, American Revolution. But you see, uh, the American Revolution was not against the bank. The American Re uh, Revolution was against King George III. So we won against King George III, but we didn't win against uh, the Bank of England, of which King George III was a major stockholder. So King George lost this wonderful colony over here, but he retained the banking control and continued to uh, get his interest and his profits from uh, his American colony, just as before. Okay, let's go from King George to the Federal Reserve. What happened in between? Because there was some time in there, and some people say that Andrew Jackson was one of the best presidents this country ever had. Could you tell us about him, and what did he do in regard to banking? Well, you see, immediately after the Revolution, when we had our wonderful independence and we could have the Fourth of July and shoot off firecrackers and still pay interest to the Bank of England, which no one seemed to mind because they didn't know about it, and so uh, uh, Andrew Hamilton established or reestablished the Bank of England presence in the United States of America immediately after the Revolution, called the First Bank of the United States, which Jefferson strongly opposed. And when Jefferson became president, he refused to renew the charter of this foreign central bank, the First Bank of the United States, so it went out of existence. And in revenge for that, England declared war on us when we had the War of 1812, which was simply a banking war. Of course, you won't uh, read that in any history book in England or in the United States. They tell you that American seamen were being impressed uh, by the British Navy. They would stop American ships and impress American seamen. And this was the occasion of the war. Well, it had nothing to do with it. It was simply the Bank of England said, we're going to punish the United States for refusing to renew the charter of the First Bank of the United States. So anyway, we, uh, the First Bank of the United States disappeared, and then uh, Nicholas Biddle, an agent of James Rothschild of Paris, uh, chartered the Second Bank of the United States. And it was doing quite well until Andrew Jackson came along, and he said to the bankers, you are a nest of vipers, and by God, I will write you out. And so he did. He removed all of the government deposits from the Second Bank of the United States in 1836, which caused it to collapse. And in revenge, the Bank of England suspended uh, all American paper, which caused the first great depression in the United States called the Panic of 1837. That was strictly a banker's panic. And, of course, then the Rothschilds came in and bought up uh, American securities at one cent on the dollar and established a great many of the great American fortunes, including J.P. Morgan. But Andrew Jackson himself, would, you would credit him with at least taking a stand against this banking monopoly that is destroying his America. Well, he was a general and a patriot and an American, and uh, to him the bankers were Satan incarnate. They were robbing and looting this country. They were oppressing the people. They were causing financial uh, depression and widespread suffering. And he said, I'm going to go after them. And he did. Unfortunately, the history books do not tell you why he did anything that he did. So uh, the American children go to school and they have no idea what all this was about. Neither do the college students. Neither do the graduate college students. You know, I saw a beautiful statue of Andrew Jackson not long ago up in Jacksonville, Florida. And a lot of people don't realize that the state of Florida the first governor was Andrew Jackson. Yes, that's right. And the city of Jacksonville was named after this wonderful patriot and hero of the American middle class. Now, let's talk a little, let's go a little bit further. You mentioned the word Rothschilds. Where did that name come from, please? 
Well, uh, there was a family of moneylenders in Frankfurt, Germany, named Bauer, which means peasant. And why these moneylenders were trying to call themselves peasants, I don't know, because none of them had ever been near a plow in their life. And so uh, they were moneylenders, and uh, they needed some uh, way of advertising their business. And so the founder of this dynasty, the House of Rothschild, uh, put up a red shield above his door so that people who came from various parts of Europe to, uh, to change money with him uh, could find it. And so uh, after uh, a few years, uh, people didn't know any, who Bauer was, but they knew the Rothschild. The red shield was Rothschild. And so uh, he simply began to call himself Rothschild. Okay, now, he, uh, he died eventually, but uh, did he leave a dynasty of some sort? I mean, how did this happen? Well, he left five sons who were very well-trained by this man, who by that time had become the outstanding uh, moneylender of Europe, due to a very peculiar circumstance. King George III and the Bank of England wanted to pub punish uh, the American colonists for being so obstreperous and for refusing to give all of their profits to the Bank of England from their income. And so uh, uh, when they re rebelled, then the British Army did not really want to fight their American cousins. So uh, King George said, well, I've got to get somebody else to fight this war. I need some mercenaries, some hired soldiers. And over in Germany, the Elector of Hesse, a German province, had a very well-trained group of uh, soldiers called the Hessians. And so he said, uh, well, I'll rent these out to you, King George, who was a German himself, by the way, a Hanover. And uh, uh, he said, uh, for $5 million, you can have this nice army. And so George said, all right. And then when the Elector of Hesse got this $5 million, uh, he said, what am I going to do with it? And they said, well, this, uh, there's a very good uh, investor and financial advisor named Meyer Amstrel Rothschild there in Frankfurt. So he let uh, Meyer Amstrel lend out this money, which was the biggest chunk of capital in Europe at that time, $5 million. And so uh, Amstrel spread it around, and pretty soon he brought back uh, $20 million uh, to the elector, was very pleased, and uh, kept $5 million for his efforts. So now he was a monetary power himself, and of course the elector of Hesse let it be known that if you had money to invest, uh, put it in Meyer Amstrel's hands. So when Meyer died, he had five sons, and uh, so they dispersed themselves over the five capitals of Europe, and Nathan uh, went to London, James went to Paris, and so forth. So they now had total control of the monetary resources of Western civilization, the entire continent of Europe. And um, they had developed some very interesting techniques. One was that uh, the courier went from James in Paris to Nathan uh, Mayer in London, uh, and he wanted a million dollars in gold. So he would give him a note saying, I want a million dollars in gold, but he would not sign it. So if uh, someone came into a Rothschild office, uh, a courier and said, I have a request here for a million dollars that signed James Rothschild, and Nathan knew it was fake because they didn't sign their communications. Mm-hmm. little trickery even then, but I think <laughs> good little trickery. Well, you live and learn, you know. That's right. So we're talking about the New World Order. In the New World Order, we had the war with England, and that was the Revolutionary War. And there was the banking system that was set up, and it was Alexander Hamilton that set it up originally after that. Thomas Jefferson then went ahead and decided this was not good for the American people. 
And then after that, we had the War of 1812, and then we come to Andrew Jackson, and he fought the bankers again, and then we have the Rothschilds, and their dynasty is building. Tell us about the Rothschilds now, how they enter into the picture as far as, shall we say, the Federal Reserve is concerned. Well, the Rothschilds realized early on you don't make any money by lending somebody $200 to buy a used car. They only dealt with governments and with the uh, kings of Europe, and um, they only handled government loans because that's where the big money was. And you see, they realized it was a sure thing because if you lent money to a government and they didn't repay you, uh, then you, they would never get any more money. And they always needed money for wars and for... Uh, to be on Versailles and so forth. Uh, uh, to be a king means you spend a lot of money. You're a big spender. And uh, they could always tax their people enough to repay the Rothschilds their money, so they had nothing to worry about. And um, so by 1880, the Rothschilds really owned all of Europe, and they owned a large part of the United States secretly because they uh, always advertised and promoted the idea that the Rothschilds had no activities in the United States. And they did not because they worked through uh, August Belmont, who was their named representative, and they also worked through J.P. Morgan and Kuhn Loeb Company, which were their secret representatives. And by 1896, uh, these two Rothschild firms, J.P. Morgan and Kuhn Loeb, owned 96% of all the railroad mileage in the United States. Wow, talk about a monopoly there. And that was, that's in congressional reports. Uh, I got that right out of, uh, most of my work, by the way, comes from congressional reports. So you do researching on congressional reports, and how far do you back to these, this research information go, Eustace? About 5,000 years. 5,000 years. We're talking to Eustace Mullins, ladies and gentlemen, and we're talking about the new world order. Well, tell us then, the Rothschilds, tell us about the Federal Reserve, now they become involved in the Federal Reserve, and what about Soviet Russia? How did Soviet Russia come into this new world order situation, Mr. Mullins? Well, uh, Soviet Russia was always part of the world order, and in fact, the Soviet empire the evil empire, which we heard so much about and in the 1950s, we were digging uh, atom bomb shelters in our backyards to protect us from this catastrophe, which was going to happen at any moment, and which was good for the uh, contracting industry, but it didn't uh, really help anybody as far as avoiding atomic bombs. So the Soviet empire came about because of greed and envy. Now, communism, of course, is based on hatred, greed, and envy. But what people don't realize is that the Russian Revolution came about because of the greed and envy of King George V of England uh, for his cousin, Tsar uh, Nicholas II of Russia, who happened to be the richest man in the world. And when you're the richest man in the world, the uh, consequence is all the people who are not quite as rich hate you and wish they could get their hands on your money. So uh, the Rothschilds told King George V, uh, they were all around him as his advisors in London, they said, look, uh, let's go after Nick and uh, get his dough. And uh, George said, well, I'm game. And so uh, the Rothschilds started the communist movement in Russia. And so uh, they murdered the Tsar and his family and uh, took his gold, which was sent to Paris and to Kuhn Loeb Company in New York and the other Rothschild offices, London and so forth. And uh, uh, some of this money, by the way, these Rothschild banks used to buy 
the original stock of the Federal Reserve System in 1914. That was all bought with the Tsar's money, and so the Romanov heirs, such as are still alive, are the real owners of our Federal Reserve System. And so, as I say, they murdered the richest man in the world took all his money. Well, what year was that, by the way? What, uh, what year was that when they murdered the Tsar? Well, that was 1918. They had the uh, Communist uh, Revolution in 1917. And uh, the first thing they did was go in and loot the whole country. They took all the money. And um, so uh, the result was the, uh, the new Soviet empire had no operating capital and they couldn't tax anybody because they had murdered all the people who owned anything. So you couldn't go out and uh, tax the peasants to keep the country running. So they sent up uh, cries of anguish and people all over the world responded. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, our president, uh, uh, he made a speech to Congress in which he said, it is our duty to help these noble murderers in Moscow, in so many words. And, uh, so he first sent them $25 million of his personal war fund, voted to him by Congress to prosecute World War I, and he sent Elihu Root, who, by the way, wrote the charters of all the major foundations. Uh, Elihu Root was a lawyer of whom J.P. Morgan said, when I call in lawyers and I want something done, they give me a lot of reasons why it cannot be done. He said, when I call in Elihu Root, Elihu Root says, what do you want me to do? And I tell him, and he does it. So that's why he became the lawyer for the big bankers in this country. Now, tell me, Eustace, because there's a lot of people that have said that the banking themselves, that the communist revolution was started on Wall Street. Is that a true fact or not, Eustace Mullen? Uh, it's absolutely true. Uh, all of the money for Wall Street, uh, for uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, came from Wall Street, uh, really from Rothschild firms, but uh, it would have been too obvious if the Rothschilds of London were sending all their money over to Russia to help the communists. So they did it through uh, their favorite Patsy, which is uh, the American government. And um, they even formed a special uh, firm on Wall Street uh, in 1916 to finance the communist revolution in Russia, which was called American International Corporation. And its directors were Percy Rockefeller, uh, the richest men in the United States, including a financier named George Herbert Walker, who just happened to be the grandfather of George Bush, our president. Now, how does this George Bush fit in now? George Herbert Walker Bush, the former president, or about to be president of the United States, formerly anyway, how does he fit it with his father and was it his father and the Rockefellers and the Harrimans and the Brown Brothers? Did they all work together as far as this New World Order is concerned? Well, the New World Order is a group of insiders. It's sort of an international mafia. And they either work together or they get eliminated. I mean, these people have to cooperate because the death sentence is automatic if you don't. And uh, you don't say, I'm going my way to heck with you because uh, if you go your way, your way is straight down. And uh, so uh, George Bush was like a lot of scions of these World Order families. That is, he was unemployable. I mean, if uh, he came in to be interviewed uh, and there were eight people there, he would be the eighth one that you would hire if you had to hire eight people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson... Uh, should have had seven others when he was running for president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> too bad, too bad it didn't. Lyndon Johnson was quite a perceptive guy. He was a Texas redneck, and uh, 
He came to Washington and he looked at all these bright young men at the Central Intelligence Agency who were from the wealthiest families in the United States. They were there as a lark. They wanted to play James Bond and their families uh, would do... Uh, and as uh, Lyndon said, he said the CIA is composed of uh, scions of wealthy families whose families would never dare let them near the business because it would be dissolved within six weeks. So George Herbert Bush, uh, uh, George Herbert uh, Walker Bush, uh, when they, you know, he finished at Yale, and they said, well, should we put him in the family firm of Brown Davis Harriman? They said, good God, no, we'll be in the breadlines within two months. So uh, they said, let him go work, let him do what everybody else does. Go work for the Central Intelligence Agency and travel around and have fun. So George went to work uh, for the CIA. It's the only job he ever had, just like Bill Buckley, another scion of a wealthy family. Uh, Bill Buckley was hired by the CIA when he finished at Yale, Skull and Bones. We're talking about the Brotherhood of Death here, the Skull and Bones crowd, mm -hmm. which Bill Buckley and George Bush and all of the partners that found Brothers Harriman were members of this um, Illuminati fraternity uh, established in 1848 as the Russell Trust by Daniel Court Gilman, uh, who also, by the way, later set up the charitable foundations. Uh, Gilman was on the board of uh, all of these char so-called charitable foundations, which were simply secret instruments of the world order. So George became a member of the CIA. As a matter of fact, he was CIA director in 1976. An interesting thing happened to Eustace in 76, and that was when he met one Saddam Hussein, who became involved in power in Iraq at the time. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, uh, George was always a business partner of Saddam, and he claimed he didn't know him, so he deliberately, uh, when he was on camera, he always mispronounced his name. He always called him Saddam, uh, as though he were trying to call him a Sodomite. I don't know. But anyway, they've been business partners that goes way back. And uh, Saddam himself, you know, is worth about $10 billion. He's a player on the world scene. And that's why when George was ranting about uh, getting rid of the new Hitler and he sent an army over there to do it, they walked away leaving uh, Saddam Hussein in total control. Uh, I don't think he ever heard a gunshot fired during that entire Iraqi war. But uh, to get back to George, he didn't uh, start out uh, with the CIA. He started out as an agent, a secret agent of the CIA, who was running his own oil company called Zapata Oil Company. And, uh, you know, George, when he wanted a name for his company, he wanted a name that really represented what he believed in. So he didn't call it the Thomas Jefferson Oil Company, and he didn't call it the George Washington Oil Company. Uh, he looked down at Mexico where you had a communist revolutionary named General Emiliano Zapata. And Emiliano was quite a bloodthirsty guy. Uh, his idea of a good time was to go into a village and line up all the women and children and shoot them. So George said, this is my kind of guy. So he named his oil company Zapata Oil Company. It showed uh, uh, the kind of people that he would like to have around him. And um, the Zapata Oil Company was never anything but a front for the CIA. They did a lot of work in Mexico and in the Gulf of Mexico uh, for uh, the CIA. And of course, when you had the supposed uh, attack against Castro uh, to, uh, to wipe out communism in Cuba, 
George was in on the planning, and of course uh, they bought two ships to uh, to haul the rebel, the uh, fighters, uh, freedom fighters, to Cuba. And they named one of them Barbara after his wife, and they named the other ship Zapata after his oil company. So George was pretty well uh, inside all the way, and uh, of course they never intended to overthrow Castro. You see, when you set up a regime that you control. Like in 1917, they set up the Bolshevik regime, and the American taxpayer had supported the Soviet uh, empire uh, from 1917 right up till the time it collapsed. And the only reason it collapsed was that the United States was bankrupt, they couldn't send them any more money. So uh, we destroyed communism by going bankrupt ourselves, which I guess is one way of doing it. You said one time, Eustace, that uh, the Russians have been trying to make it through the winter every winter since its inception of the communism, and we've been helping them yeah. through the winter. Well, the, the guy who helped them first was Herbert Hoover. Uh, after they sent him money, Wilson sent him money, and uh, then they said, we don't have any food. So Herbert Hoover, the great engineer who was a Rothschild employee, after he had been banned for life from the London Stock Exchange as a thief and an embezzler, and the Rothschild said, boy, we want this guy on our side. Sure. So they hired him as a director of Rio Tinto Zinc, one of their family firms. And uh, so uh, then in uh, 1916, the Germans said, look, we can't fight any longer. We don't have any more money. We don't have any more food. And we don't have any more coal. So the Rothschilds, the Rothschilds said, well, hang on, and we'll see what we can do. So they got Herbert Hoover to inaugurate the German Relief Commission. But since we were at war with Germany, they couldn't well call it the German Relief Commission, so they called it the Belgian Relief Commission. And uh, the Belgians were suddenly uh, were astounded to find out that they were all starving when they had just had the best crop year they ever had. But anyway, the Belgian Relief Commission, which, by the way, was one of the greatest thieveries uh, in the world, Herbert Hoover and his pals who ran this uh, operation, uh, they all came out of it, multimillionaires. And, uh, Herbert Hoover several times uh, remarked very sourly, some of these days, some prying SOB is going to want to look at our books. Well, no one ever did, and uh, they kept their money. But uh, after the Belgian Relief Commission, which kept the uh, Germany uh, in, in the World War I for two more years and brought a very satisfactory conclusion, then uh, they called on Herbert to help them out again. They said, look, the Bolsheviks are starving. Uh, they've shot all the peasants and the farmers and uh, have no food. So um, Herbert Hoover then organized Russian relief, and he went over and saved the Bolsheviks from total collapse. And somehow, after this, he became known as a great anti-communist, which just shows you what, when you control the media, you can uh, sell any story that you want. Absolutely, and one of the things that was so sad for me to read about, of course, was the the, uh, when the Bolsheviks did go into the Ukraine and they did kill so many people, they starved between six and eight million Ukrainians out. And this is the end result of what the America has done because America itself, this government, not the country, I don't believe the country used to, I don't believe the patriotic people in the country, but this government was responsible for funding situations like this, weren't they? Oh, very much so. In fact, uh, this great massacre uh, of the uh, Russian peasants in the early 1930s was deliberately suppressed by Walter Durante, the chief correspondent in Russia of the New York Times, and uh, he dictated what would be allowed to be sent back to his country. They totally suppressed this so that Franklin Roosevelt, as a principal plank of his uh, platform in 1933, 
that uh, was to give official diplomatic recognition to Soviet Russia so we could send them even more money, uh, taxpayers' money, than they'd been doing before. So, but they couldn't do this if uh, the press was going to print a story that uh, 10 to 12 million Russians had been murdered by Stalin. So the story was completely suppressed, and in fact, the American people today really don't uh, know whether to believe it or not. There have been several books out about it by Robert Conquest, which are very good, totally documented, but they don't get much play in the media. You know, they had, they had a movie at one time on PBS, but PBS refused to run it in most of its affiliate, and that was Harvest of Despair. Oh, yes. It was a television, uh, I think it was about an hour, an hour and a half long, or a couple hours anyway, but it showed exactly what happened and the terrible human tragedy that this government, the United States of America government, was involved in by the fact that they supported communism in other parts of the world, namely the Soviet Union at that time. You know, it's interesting to me, Eustace, that over 70 million people have been killed by communism, many by their own people, and we still support governments like that. How can this happen, Eustace Mullen? Well, you mentioned public broadcasting system, PBS, which uh, to most uh, people on in the know, they call it the phony. They say PBS stands for the phony broadcasting system because they're a bunch of goofy left-wingers and homosexuals, and they're so relentlessly far left in, in their orientation that occasionally some congressman or some senator will point out, has PBS ever um, published any or uh, run anything which was of a conservative nature? And, of course, the answer is no. And whenever someone in Washington points this out, uh, why they would have to point it out, I don't know, because all you got to do is turn this uh, phony broadcasting system on, and you can see it for yourself. But um, um, uh, whenever a congressman mentions this, they immediately denounce him in the entire press as a, a hate monger, guy who wants to suppress freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. And of course, there is no freedom of speech on the phony broadcasting system because it's totally left-wing. Now, we have, we have a number of people, different types of people, different nationalities in this world. We had World War One, we had World War Two, we had South Korean War, and then we had Vietnam. Should we have fought any of those wars, Eustace Mullins? Was there a real reason? And what was the end result of us being involved in, say, World War One and World War Two? Uh, well, John, uh, you have to understand what wars are. Wars are carefully staged productions. Now, these are all carefully staged, and they did what they were supposed to do, and they had a good audience, and uh, so I think they were successful. But uh, to say that these wars were about anything, that they had some particular philosophy of government opposing another philosophy of government uh, is total nonsense. These were world order productions, and uh, as I say, they were carefully staged. Both sides were set up to perform in a certain manner, and uh, the outcome was always predetermined. In other words, you were looking at a staged production uh, which you had already seen many times as sort of a soap opera, and you knew how it was going to come out before it even started. Now, Eustace, you're a veteran, and I'm a veteran. And I know when I went in the service, I was just about as patriotic as anybody could possibly be. That's the way that I felt anyway. And, you know, I, well, I saw things in the service, Eustace Mullins, that would lead me to believe that I still love my country, don't get me wrong, but it's this government that I don't think that I'd ever fight for again because you just kill a lot of people, raise a lot of debt, raise a lot of taxes. I come back, the people are, 
are far worse off than they ever were before, and we seem to be enslaving ourselves. Is this true, or am I imagining things? Oh, you're not imagining anything. In fact, um, I was in the Air Force during World War II, and uh, I can say that we were very patriotic because uh, during our basic training down here at uh, Miami Beach, uh, we were marching along, drilling in the morning, and we were singing to Cadence, and we would sing, uh, I hate wall. Eleanor hates wall. My dog, Bala, hates wall. And all we did was make fun of these phonies in Washington, you see. So I, I can say that we were that patriotic. <clears throat> and over in uh, England, whenever Winston Churchill came on, uh, Evelyn Wall, one of the most famous uh, English novelists, uh, pointed out in his memoirs that uh, whenever um, Winston Churchill came on uh, the radio while they were sitting around in their officers' club uh, with one of his great speeches, they would sit around, they would laugh themselves to tears at this old gunk, you see. So uh, when you say patriotism, I don't know how much patriotism there really was. Tell us a little bit more about Winston Churchill. Was he a bought and paid for? Uh, yes, Winston Churchill uh, at times spoke out against communism. You know, he's, he was a uh, son of a uh, syphilitic named uh, Randolph Churchill, but whether uh, uh, apparently he didn't inherit uh, the uh, taint, but anyway, he was always a little goofy. And uh, he, was, he was really a drunk. If he didn't have his two quarts of whiskey a day, uh, he really didn't know where he was. And during the great uh, Blitz of London, uh, a, uh, most uh, people thought he was, you know, being very brave, staying in London during the Blitz uh, Krieg. Oh, and that's where his two quarts of whiskey were. <laughs> well, he, he was eight stories down. They built him a special shelter, eight stories down in the ground, a very comfortable room. And uh, he was liberally supplied with whiskey. And uh, in fact, they used to show this room. Uh, uh, but uh, a historian named David Irving did a new biography of Winston Churchill. And uh, he was an establishment historian. He was published by Macmillan, which is owned by the Rothschilds. And so he, came, he uh, sent this new biography of Churchill to the uh, offices of Macmillan. And when she went in at uh, some length about how this old drunk uh, uh, slept out the uh, war in this uh, special room underneath London. And they said, oh, no, you can't print that. And he said, well, that, that's the key to my whole biography. And uh, so they said, well, goodbye. And they refused to print the uh, book. And he finally got it out on his own. And he started uh, touring and lecturing on some of his discoveries with the result that uh, Canada officially banned him from entering Canada. That's a very dangerous person because he was telling the truth about Winston Churchill. And uh, they have riots when he speaks, you know, and uh, it's all very exciting. <laughs> We're talking with Eustace Mullen today, ladies and gentlemen, and this is the book. It's The World Order by, and it's about our secret rulers. It's extremely, extremely important that we understand what is happening in America today because we do have a $4 trillion debt. The nation is on its way down. We've become a third world entity. And we used to be the finest, the most, the strongest, the most industrialized, the number one nation in the world. And our education system also used to be the very best. We're having severe problems, ladies and gentlemen, and that's why Bobby Lee is here today with Eustace Mullins, one of the patriarchs and the heroes of the truth and the Jeffersonian philosophy of government. 
So this is the book that I think that you must, must have in your possession in order to become educated about the world order. The business of America, what really, when we're talking about the business of America, what is the business of America? I thought it was for little businesses to be able to start and to work hard and to progress and for a small family to be able to build themselves up and become financially successful and, and with morals and ethics and everybody work for the common good. Is that the way that business is done in the government today? No, no, that's the myth. But we, unfortunately, you and I are talking here today about the reality. <clears throat> we could talk about myths uh, all evening if we wished, but uh, if we're going to talk about reality, then we have to say that this is a soap opera from Hollywood, the American dream. What we are facing today is the American nightmare, a, a wholly owned colony dictated to by aliens uh, in which uh, the chance of a young person today of making it is almost nil, unless he happens to be a scion of one of the insider world order dynastic families, as George Bush was. Now, George Bush, of course, his path was smooth. He was a member of the Brotherhood of Death from Yale University. <laughs> and uh, we were so lucky to have him replaced by Bill Clinton. Apparently, from middle America, the heartland of America, uh, a Rockefeller protege, a Rhodes Scholar. There's never been a Rhodes Scholar. They're the Rothschild Scholars, but they didn't want to call themselves Rothschild Scholars, so they named themselves Rhodes Scholars. So we have now in Washington Bill Clinton, a Rothschild Scholar, and Rockefeller protege. You know, the Washington Post on June 21st explained the sudden meteoric rise of Bill Clinton when you had all these people contending for the presidential nomination in the Democratic Party and they all looked equally qualified, they all looked equally stupid and uh, which would satisfy the American And they were all lawyers. And they were all lawyers and they were all protégés and insiders. You had Albert Gore whose family uh, has lived off of largesse from uh, Armand Hammer for many years, uh, the founder of the Communist Party of the United States. And uh, this has all been printed in the Washington Post and many other places. So uh, suddenly the Rockefeller said, well, it's time for the show uh, to be over. And so um, Senator Jerry Rockefeller and David Rockefeller notified them, Clinton is the man. I want all you other people to disappear. And so uh, Clinton came forth as number one Rockefeller choice. You know, it's, it's amazing. Of course, you know, to me, from changing from George Herbert Walker Bush to Bill Clinton is just like leaving the soiled diaper on the baby and just changing the safety pin. <laughs> very good, very good analysis. Right. There's money bought and paid for, as you know, and Jackson Stevens loaned Bill Clinton $2 million, and that was back in, I believe, around February or so, and Bill Clinton was really kind of almost getting down towards the bottom of the heap of those seven individuals that at first had decided to run for uh, President of the United States on a Democratic ticket, and all of a sudden he had this money. He came into Georgia, had 26 people that he employed as far as uh, being front uh, people, and pretty soon he took Georgia in the South, and he was well on his way, and I think that was pretty close to it. But he was a bought and paid for, you say. You're saying that Bill Clinton himself is bought and paid for, and you, are you telling me that we voted for a change, and the change isn't going to come to our benefit, Eustace? Well, that reminds me of a story I heard in uh, my small town in Virginia, and um, these two businessmen were talking, and one of them had a bill that he wanted to uh, be approved in Congress. And he said, um, I wonder if I couldn't uh, influence Congressman so-and-so in Washington to vote for this bill uh, if I uh, um, 
you know, just bought him. And uh, the other man said, don't be ridiculous. That's the most insulting thing I ever heard of. He said, Congressman so-and-so was bought and paid for long before he ever got to Washington. <laughs> and he's an anonymous congressman. Once he's bought and paid for, <laughs> he stays bought and paid for. Absolutely. He goes off the block. He's no longer available. <laughs> right. We're coming to today, and we're coming from George Bush to uh, Bill Clinton. What do you see in the future for America for the next 10 years? Well, this new world order, is it taking shape, or do you think that all of a sudden we're going to come to critical mass and it's all going to disintegrate before our very eyes. Well, I think we're at critical mass already. Now, we have a very interesting situation, which we saw during the last election. You had the biggest turnout that you ever had, and, of course, uh, the, the trend had been for lower and lower percentages of the American people uh, to come out and vote because they did everything that they possibly could to... Uh, discourage the American people from participating in the election. Fewer people voted every year because, uh, you know, they, they made sure, they understood you either vote for Tweedledum or Tweedledee, and uh, it doesn't make any difference which one gets in because we created them both out of nothing, just like the Federal Reserve creates money out of nothing, and we create these politicians out of nothing. And when you look at them, you can see that they come from nothing. <laughs> yeah, not There's no question. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> There's no question about that in anyone's mind. Well, this time, you suddenly had a wild card, and um, that was a uh, billionaire named Perot. He appeared on the scene, and he was almost elected president by acclamation. People were so disgusted with these phonies, Bush and Clinton, and uh, no matter how hard you tried, you couldn't say anything good about either one of them. <laughs> and uh, so the people looked at his uh, successful businessman, Perot, Spunky, uh, got down to business. He would get on television and rivet the attention of the American audience simply with a few charts, which has always been a no-no in politics. You never saw a show a chart to the people if you want to get votes. Well, you never tell them how it's really like. That's right. And you never tell them, uh, look, we're, uh, we're destitute. We've got to start thinking of something. Because, you see, uh, the Rothschilds and the world order dynastic families, they profit by other people's suffering and despair. Uh, they profit when you have a communist revolution go in and murder 10 million peasants. They profit when you have a world war that devastates Europe. And so uh, this is exactly uh, uh, what happens. You know, Baron Alphonse de Rothschild was asked during the communist revolution there, uh, he said, um, aren't you worried about your, all of your houses and uh, your vast estates and so forth with the revolution going on? He said, certainly not. He said, you always want to buy when blood is running in the streets. That is when everybody thinks we're, we're collapsing, nothing's going to be worth anything, and they say, I'm going to dump this for a penny on the dollar. That's when the Rothschilds and the insiders buy everything. And, uh, of course, the United States is coming to that point. Now we're in a recession, real estate is down. This is the time to buy because this is a fluctuating thing. It goes up and it comes down. It goes up and it comes down because uh, it's manipulated. It's always manipulated. You know, J.P. Morgan was asked once as a leading banker in the United States. Someone rushed up to him and said, uh, Mr. Morgan, Mr. Morgan, please, would you tell me what is the stock market going to do? He said, sir, it will fluctuate. <laughs> 
I love it. That's a that's a great story. Let, let's go back to the dynasties because one time I heard you speaking, Eustace, and you said that there are three tiers as far as the dynasty of families is concerned from the Rothschilds and the New World Order. Could you explain that three-tier system to me? Well, nothing can really function unless there's a hierarchy. Somebody at the top has to tell the people lower down what to do and how to think and how to act and so forth. So in the world order, you have a very distinct hierarchy. Uh, uh, dynastic families who can trace their lineage back thousands of years. And uh, because they have learned to survive and how to manipulate other people to do their work. And that's all being a member of the world order means. You know how to use other people and profit by them. And uh, whether you slaughter them or rob them or torture them, whatever you do, you make money at it. And uh, this is what they do. So uh, uh, in the world order, you have a, a top hierarchy of the first tier rank of dynastic families composed really of the old surviving aristocracies of Europe uh, the black nobility, they're called. They're called the black nobility because they came from the darker strain in uh, the aristocracy of Europe. And the old uh, Viking, blue-eyed, blonde aristocrats, more or less, were pushed into the background, or they intermarried with the black nobility and became contaminated. And this is what you have. Uh, of course, the surviving royal family in Europe today is the royal family of England. And they have been black nobility since the 12th century when the Este family of uh, Italy married into the British royal family. So uh, the first rank, uh, first tier is the old aristocracies of Europe plus what they call the Hofjuden, which are the Rothschilds and families of that nature who are able to raise money for them and keep them functioning. Now in the second tier of world dynastic families, uh, the world order, you have the families who themselves are enormously rich and powerful, but their duty is to serve as courtiers to the first tier of dynastic families. And people in that category are the Rockefellers, the Harrimans, the Morgans, and so forth. Now you have a third tier of uh, uh, dynastic families who serve the second tier. They're never allowed to approach the real top people in the first tier, but they can only serve through the serving the second tier. And these are families like uh, the uh, George Herbert Walker Bush family. Uh, George Herbert Walker was president of W.A. Harriman Company, and uh, the, the Bush family's entire career in banking was to serve the Harriman interests, who in turn served the Rothschilds. So uh, that's why I began to use the term about Bush as a uh, dynastic family in the world order of the third tier. And it was picked up, and I see it popping up everywhere. They say, George Bush is a third tier family. They don't even know what they're talking about. They don't explain it because they don't know how to explain it. But that's uh, at least it. Uh, much of my material, by the way, Bob, uh, I see popping up all over the place. Because it goes into the system and it's sort of piped in and begins to be picked up by people. For instance, uh, columnists like uh, Pat Buchanan and James uh, Kilpatrick. Uh, and once in a while, they'll pick up something of mine. Pat Buchanan had a column not long ago in which he denounced the uh, Trotskyite uh, wing, the neoconservatives of the Republican Party, which I had been speaking about publicly for about five years. 
and so, and which I describe in my book of the rape of justice. I give you the whole story about that takeover. And um, as I say, it's uh, rather flattering to see these things come out in public uh, piecemeal. Mm -hmm. They never really explain it, and of course they never attribute it to my writings, but at least it's getting around, and that's helpful. Now, we've had this last election, of course, uh, H. Ross Pro did an excellent job, a wonderful job. Uh, you only caught the 20%, though, because of the fact I think a lot of people in uh, the media themselves always kept saying, well, a third party can't win. And yet we've had a two-party system in this country, but some people say it's just one party. It's the Democrat wing of the Communist Party or the Republican wing of the Communist Party. Could you explain that? Could that be true at all? Well, it's been true since 1933. You see, you had a man in a wheelchair running for governor of New York named Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, Delano Roosevelt, and uh, he was the grandson of the most successful opium uh, dealer in uh, Hong Kong named Warren Delano. And, uh, you know, the, the myth about the great fortunes uh, of this country is that these are hardworking people who saved their money and built uh, important businesses. The fact is most of the old family money in this country came from dealing in drugs and dealing in slaves, the slave trade and the world opium trade. Mm -hmm. And of course the Roosevelt, uh, the Delano Roosevelt's, uh, well, we've, we've become the slaves now. We're still well, dealing in slaves. Anyway. Well, what has happened in this country and over the world is we have reverted through the world order. We've reverted to the Middle Ages. We have a feudal system now in which uh, you might say futile system because of the way it works, but uh, it's a feudal system in which uh, you have the serfs and you have the lords in the castle, and that's it. And there's not to be anything in between. You see, the great uh, achievement of Western culture, of European culture, was to produce, uh, to move from the Middle Ages into modern times by producing a middle class, a hard-working, thrifty, sober uh, group of people who created businesses and uh, uh, went into production and uh, they built homes and uh, businesses and so forth and they brought prosperity. But you see, uh, when you're very rich, you don't like to see prosperity. I mean. What's the good of having money when everybody else has money, you see? So the world order, they want to see everybody poor. Then, you, then they can control them, is that it? They can control them, and also, it's much more satisfying to have a, a castle and a yacht if you know that all the peasants down there will never have these things and compete yeah. with you, you see. Right. So the world order is a monopoly system, and uh, they make their money out of monopolies, uh, and uh, with their monopoly, they control the governments, they control the banks, and uh, they set their prices, and uh, it's an extortion system, really, just like the Internal Revenue Service in this country. I traced it right back to the Middle Ages, the black hand of the mafia, and uh, all of their techniques and all of their goals come right out of the black hand. Well, I'd like to give that IRS a backhand for their <laughs> black-handedness, to tell you the truth. How do we uh, turn this around? If they have, if they allegedly have the power, and money is power, Eustace, and a lot of people say they've got all the money, you know, they have control of the government, they have control of the Republican Party, Democrat parties, they have the bureaucracy. Well, how do you fight a little bit of strength like that? Well, I have to disagree with you there, Bobby Lee. Money is not power. Knowledge is power. Okay. And unfortunately for the world order people, Information is catching up with them. You have uh, channels of mass communication. In fact, 
if we were to get on national television with 30 minutes of what we're talking about today, you would have a revolution in this country. They can only survive by desperate defensive measures by keeping us from reaching the American people with the truth. And of course, we're fighting to, to, to despite of. And uh, that's been what my 50-year career has been, to bring the knowledge that I have and that Ezra Pound imparted to me almost 50 years ago to the American people. And of course, the reason you had this great turnout in this uh, particular election that just passed was the American people knew something was wrong and some of this material was leaking out yeah, you know, I've circulated over a million books and over a thousand articles uh, in the past 50 years. <clears throat> and uh, the information is getting there. Mm -hmm. Even though, to the national media, I still do not exist. I'm a non-person. And that's one of the things that they try to do, Eustace, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, they either smear people or they don't allow them to be able to present their knowledge. There's so many different ways, techniques that they have that are certainly un-American. Well, the publishing industry in this country is totally owned. In fact, one of the biggest influences in the publishing industry in this country is the uh, Central Intelligence Agency. They commission and have written and publish and circulate around 200 books of political propaganda a year which makes the CIA the biggest publisher in the United States, secretly. And of course, there is no Central Intelligence Agency. It's a branch of the British Secret Intelligence Service, SIS, which was established in 1694 as a necessary adjunct of the Bank of England. So uh, we have never had a government intelligence service. What we have is a branch of the Bank of England, uh, which, as I say, uh, has uh, commissioned and published these 200 books a year of political propaganda, which are distributed to all the universities, and every professor in our universities knows that you have got to use these political propaganda books of the CIA as your teaching textbooks. You have Zygmunt Brzezinski. He used to be one of the right-hand men of Jimmy Carter. Henry Kissinger with Richard Nixon. These people hardly speak English to some degree, but yet they're controlling, in many cases, the foreign policy of this country. Tell them, you know, foreign policy of this country, I mean, it's really been foreign as far as I'm concerned. Could you explain why? Well, uh, you're talking now about the field of lecturing and public speaking, which is one of my fields. And um, interestingly enough, the fees paid to public speakers in the United States are uh, proportion inversely to how much information they give to the American people. Now, speakers who get between $35,000 and $100,000 per speech get up and give speeches in which they say absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. And then when you have people on my level who give you solid information by the ton, uh, we get practically no fees whatsoever because they don't even want us to ever appear in public. We ask you to uh, support the Bobby Lee and the Eustace Mullins Fund, and we will be bringing you in the future other videos, and we want you to go ahead and purchase as many of Eustace's books as possible. There is a number that you can call right now. It'll be on your screen, and you call, and you order some of those books, and this is for the posterity of your children, your family, your future. You need to know. Thanks for being with us today on the Bobby Lee Show. And Eustace Mullins, thank you, sir, for being a part of America and the great patriot that you are.
caused major changes to the maps, the people, and the governments in the Middle East. Early morning of June 5th exploded the surprise attack of the Israeli Air Force on the Egyptian airplanes on the ground. 80% of the Egyptian Air Force was destroyed. By June 7th, Israel had destroyed the air forces of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. They had control of the Sinai Peninsula, Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza. On June 8th, USS Liberty, America's most sophisticated intelligence ship in 1967, was attacked by Israeli air and naval forces in international waters, 13 miles off of El Arish in Sinai. 34 Americans were killed. 172 were wounded. The Israeli and American governments pronounced the attack as a case of mistaken identity. Issy Rehar was the chief of Israeli naval operations. He reported a ship had shelled the port city of El Arish. So I think around 12 o'clock, I decided to order three uh, MTBs, motor torpedo boats, from the port of Ashdod. Are you sure you can't see any kind of an identification? And all the words came back, no. If you will be sure that it is a military ship, you can't hit it. The first Mirage pilot radioed, oil is spilling out into the water. Another added, great, wonderful, she's burning, she's burning. And El Arish commander reported, he's hit her a lot, there's an oil slick in the water. Then headquarters asked, Menachem, is he screwing her? The next wave was Super Mysteres with thousand pound bombs and canisters of jellied gasoline. Someone in Southern Command called, he's going down low with napalm all the time. The flight leader noted, it would be a blessing if we could have iron bombs. Otherwise, our Navy's going to get here and do the sinking. A pilot interrupted. Pay attention. The ship's markings are Charlie Tango Romeo 5. There's no flag on her. And headquarters ordered, leave her. The time now is 14.12, and he says, I see CTR 5. And the minute we hear that, the Air Force stops all operations and says, all our aircraft, all our attack aircraft, please stop. I must say that at that point in time, in my mind, it was an American ship. But that opinion was not shared by the commander of the torpedo boat squadron. He believed it to be a small Egyptian freighter, the El Qasir. We told him uh, there are some doubts about identification. These doubts, incredibly, did not reach the commanding officer who ordered the torpedoes launched. That the order did not reach the commanding officer on the bridge where you launched the torpedoes. It's about the range of... Uh yards or a little bit more than thousand yards, I ordered to prepare the torpedoes and uh, ordered that uh, uh, all commanders will take the uh, action of uh, firing torpedoes. This is the story of the attack on the Liberty, told by Israeli and U.S. government sources. Now, we are going to show you what really happened. Survivors of the 294-man crew of the USS Liberty will tell you their story. I'm Tito Howard, the producer of The Loss of Liberty. The host for this program about the attack on the USS Liberty will be Dr. Richard Kiefer one of the many heroes that day. 
Dr. Kiefer was the only doctor aboard Liberty. He had a gunshot wound, he had a burn, he had a broken right kneecap, and he had 11 pieces of shrapnel in his abdomen, which he kept together with a life jacket. That man stood on those legs for 28 consecutive hours, saving American lives and limbs. This film should shock decent Americans. Above all, men and women who served in America's armed forces, it will shock particularly as it was an attack not by terrorists and placably opposed to the United States, as is the case of the USS Cole. The Liberty is the most decorated ship in the history of the United States Navy. 840 medals, including the Medal of Honor for her skipper, the Presidential Unit Citation for her crew, two Navy crosses, 11 silver stars, and 204 Purple Hearts. The, the day before, I, I was topside when I when Israeli planes came by, and very close where we could we could wave to the pilots, and they were that close where we could wave back. It was a very clear day. It was a warm day. Sunshine was, was shining brightly out. Uh, nice breeze blowing, and I distinctly remember hearing the flag flapping in the wind. There was approximately 13 sorties of our ship from 6 o'clock till 12 o'clock in the afternoon. We had a general quarters drill that lasted uh, 45 minutes or so. Our captain, uh, like me being an engineer, really believed in watertight integrity and making sure our people were equipped and knew how to fight fires and repair damage. I was coming to go back to the trust primary. I stepped out on deck. That plane came by and looked right in the cockpit. You wave that way. That's how close they were, and they knew who they were. Well, all the recon flights uh, that they had that morning looking at our ship for approximately 67 hours, they had a good idea of what they were doing, and uh, they hit they hit us hard and fast with everything they had. Commander William McGonagall, the ship's captain, although he had been badly wounded, most of his bridge crew had been killed. He stayed on the bridge throughout the attack and the long night that followed. Admired and respected by his crew, he received the Congressional Medal of Honor for gallantry. When the plane struck, it was without provocation and certainly unexpected. And they seemed to descend on us from all directions at the same time. Those rockets and machine guns tore the it killed men on deck, and we were defenseless. I heard this big bang, and there was bullet holes all behind in the cushions of the couch that I just left. And by the time I got to the door of the ward room, the skipper was on the PA system that we were under attack by unknown forces, manual battle stations. Then the regular general quarter sound alarm went off, and right across the hatch, from the ward room is where I would go through, down two decks to my station. When I went through there, there was one rocket that came through and helped me to get down two floors in a bad burn hurry. When I got up off my knees down there, well, we were well under attack. And uh, the skipper again was on the uh, phone system telling auxiliary uh, radio to get word out to anyone that they could that we were under attack by unknown forces and we were in the need of help. My own station uh, was Radio Central. 
it was my responsibility to keep up, you know, ship to ship or ship to shore communications. And uh, out and back in Radio Central, we were taking rounds through the bulkheads. There was a two 55-gallon drums of gasoline just outside the bulkhead on the O1 level that had caught fire from the strafing run, and that was uh, heating that outside bulkhead and peeling the paint off on the inside. There was a lot of smoke in the compartment. There's holes where we were taking rounds where the sunlight shining through, and it was a real surrealistic look. I was topside fighting fires and doing other damage control work throughout the duration of the attack. At the same time, I was able to observe the jets flying overhead, and I also observed the American flag flying from the mast. At no time did that flag hang limp from the mast. I was one of the two signalmen on uh, the USS Liberty uh, when the ship was attacked, and uh, my only job uh, during the attack was to make sure that uh, that the flag was flying, so uh, every few minutes I would walk out at the signal bridge up at the mast. And fighting what fire we could with what little water I could give the people topside for the fire, uh, it was really a problem. But on the first pass, they knocked out our, our ability to call for help. The one remaining antenna, which I had shut down because it had some problems in the tuner, is probably why it didn't get hit. I had to jury-rig a you know, coaxial cable directly from the transmitter to the antenna. So we were working feverishly to try to get a signal out uh, at that time, and then finally there was, uh, we were able to get a signal to the sixth fleet, and then they, I was listening to monitoring that uh, communications, and they said that they would be sending aircraft, and so at that point we just felt overjoyed that knowing that there was going to be aircraft coming to our rescue. The initial strike by the planes on the ship commenced at about five minutes after two in the afternoon of 8 June. And the attack lasted about 20 minutes. The ship was fired at from port to starboard, starboard to port, stem to stern, and there was not a single compartment above the waterline that did not have one or more direct penetration by a rocket, machine gun, and they also dropped napalm on the bridge of the ship. At 2.35 p.m., Defense Secretary Robert McNamara recalled the 12 Navy fighters that had been sent to our defense by the carrier Saratoga. At that time, no one aboard the Liberty had identified the attacking Israelis. It was one and a half hours later that our embassy in Israel first told Washington that Israelis had attacked the ship, possibly a U.S. Navy ship. How then did McNamara know to recall the help sent to defend the Liberty? When the ship came under attack, um, now here this general quarters, this is no drill, the ship is under attack by an identified aircraft and there were ping-pings. We heard a lot of pinging, uh, which were bullets running across the deck, and then we heard explosions. We didn't know what was going on, but of course, General Quarters had sounded, so we battened down the hatches, and um, we started doing what we were trained to do. We were under attack. We could hear these shells hitting the ship. The whole ship would ring. It was like you were on the inside of a huge bell and someone beating on it with a sledgehammer. The aircraft take pictures as they fire their guns. These are used for 
analysis of their tactics, and these are used for confirmation of the damage that they've done. These pictures have never been publicly presented. Lieutenant Ennis was sitting on the deck, and it was blood coming out of his mouth, and his knee was, was damned. Uh, he had an injury in his knee, and it was blood coming out of it. The Lieutenant Cough had got blown off, I think, the old four level, but I come across him, and he was just peppered from head to toe with shrapnel. And I covered him up with a blanket. My brother, he was sent to, um, on the bridge of the ship to find out what was on, who the planes were, where they came from. They had no markings. That's against the Geneva Rules of War right there. Uh, he received a silver star for his efforts. Um, he was cut down by the planes. The captain, initially after the attack, sustaining a shrapnel wounds in his knee, and somebody put a, a tourniquet around his leg, and I got coffee. I think about five cups of coffee went down the captain to keep him going. It was impressive because with all the blood loss and everything, he was, he was going all night long. A short time after the air attack had been completed, the three torpedo boats approached us from our starboard quarter at high speed at an apparent torpedo launch attitude. The three Israeli torpedo boats fired six torpedoes at the Liberty. Because of Captain McGonagall's handling of the ship, five missed. Intelligence base was destroyed. 25 American sailors died almost instantly. The skull on the side was uh, in excess of 40 feet diameter. You could put your whole house in that hole. And we were right in the middle of it. We couldn't believe what we saw. You couldn't walk around that part of the deck without stepping on a piece of someone. In fact, still turning myself, I found a shoe with a foot still in it. I do remember stand by to abandon ship. Don't leave your station yet. They were getting preparing to and then that was called off because apparently the life rafts had been shot up. So they were, if you went in the water you were on your own and the list on the ship was considerable. You could tell it looked like at first we were gonna maybe roll over. The lights went out and the ship rolled over and I figured well Sam side of the ship of the room I just stepped out of killed every man in my division that was in there. Um, the stellar first class that I mentioned, he was on the phone at the time just outside the door. It took off the back of his head. Um, it broke my lower left leg, both bones, it collapsed my lung, broke ribs, fractured my skull, blew out my eardrums. We took the guy and down below and I don't know how many runs I made up and then, you know, carry wounded. I saw all the bodies laying there on the tables at where Dr. Kiefer had been working on. I was told that he was in the officer's wardroom operating on more people. 34 were killed, another 172 were wounded. The care of these people was done by myself with the assistance of two corpsmen. The corpsmen did anything a minor surgery and I just had so much to do keeping people together keeping their limbs attached to their body we were in international waters 
Uh, it was a beautiful day. You couldn't mistake us, and, uh, and our flag was flying for crying out loud. They were going to there to kill us, and it just didn't, didn't register. And here they were, Israeli uh, people, and they were going to try to kill us. It's just a very, very appalling situation.
My RMs, not knowing any better during the strafing runs, were stringing long wires so that we could get an SOS out. And thanks to them, the ones that survived, we did get an SOS out to the USS America. Without George Golden, the ship would have sunk. Had it sunk, I assume when debris washed ashore the next day, it would have been blamed on Egypt. There were many, many miracles that day. I shouldn't be here. After watertight integrity had been established and the hatch had been sailed, they reopened it as I floated by. Uh, Buddha Schnell, Bud Schnell, went down and pulled me out. Uh, I looked in the uh, the door of the helicopter, which was open, 
and I could see uh, a number of Israelis carrying automatic weapons. They had just heard that the uh, uh, Sixth Fleet had finally launched aircraft to come to our assistance, and so they just uh, they just left the scene. Helicopter gunships, I'm sure in my mind, would have picked off survivors if we'd abandoned ship. They were sent there to finish us off. The aircraft were sent to make us incommunicado so we couldn't send an SOS out. The torpedo boats were sent to sink us, and the helicopters were sent to pick off survivors so there'd be no choice. It was a perfectly executed military operation. If you look at the photographs of the Liberty after the attack, on the first strafing run, they used heat-seeking missiles that took out the tuning section of every transmitting antenna on the ship. In less than two seconds, they had taken out all our communication capability. The attack on the USS Liberty lasted as long as the attack on Pearl Harbor, about two hours. You've heard the outrageous, implausible Israeli version of the attack on Liberty told by their first-hand observers. You've heard what actually happened told by the Valiant Liberty crew. Now, hear what some of America's greatest heroes and leaders have to say. Colonel Mitchell Page was the last Marine standing after repulsing a Japanese regiment on Guadalcanal. We all know that this was in international waters. It was an unprovoked, intentional attack on a U.S. vessel with one objective, to sink it and kill all aboard unprovoked attack. I think it was dastardly. I think it was a betrayal of any friendship that we may have had with that nation. And I think that it should be exposed to the entire world and all brought out so that the whole world would know the actual truth about that, that particular day in 1967. And very widely you can see this was an American ship. And not only did the Israelis Master Chief Bob Bush held off a Japanese advance while saving his commanding officer's life. You know, it's, it's impossible for me to figure out why maybe I would sit here and attack you when we're friends. I mean, we're, they're, they're getting our money to buy those French airplanes. And then they turn around and attack our ship when they can see that it's our ship. That's absolutely uncalled for. Army Colonel Lou Millet led the last bayonet charge against vastly superior Chinese forces in Korea. I was in the World War II. I studied all the different types of aircraft so that when I shot at a plane, I made sure I shouldn't hit the enemy and not out. They know what those ships look like. And if they don't, I can't conceive that they don't know. I do know this. There was a criminal act. There was an act of war. It's as bad as Vietnam allowing people to who would try to save people from tyranny to die for nothing. Admiral Thomas Moore is the longest serving active four-star admiral in American history. He is the only American admiral to have commanded both the Atlantic and Pacific fleets. He was head of NATO forces, served as chief of naval operations, and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for two terms. The Navy's chief fighter, the F-14 Tomcat, was named after Admiral Tom Moore. The question is, uh, if the uh, Israelis uh, thought uh, the 
frequencies they jam were, in fact, uh, broadcast by the Egyptian ship. Uh, why did they uh, uh, jam the American frequencies? There's no question about the fact that the jamming of the Liberty frequencies was deliberate and uh, uh, was undoubtedly ordered by high authority. Since uh, a large uh, part of the caches were caused by torpedo boats, could have been uh, prevented from uh, making those attacks uh, by the aircraft that were on their way to help when they were recalled. It must have been something that was very important to them to decide to attack without considering the probability of war. Recuperating from serious throat surgery, the Saratoga skipper, Joe Tully, spoke about the launch and recall of protective aircraft. I had launched ready at that time 12 aircraft, conventionally armed, and I immediately launched and to my surprise, the Americans did not launch. About the same time, uh, a message came from um, Rear Admiral Larry Geis, who was the carrier division commander, and who was not the officer in tactical command, but who was senior to me, who had somehow been given tactical command, or assumed it, ordering the strike aircraft to return to Saratoga. And it was the first time that the hotline, the red line between Washington and Moscow, had been activated. And the message from the United States to Chairman Kosygin at the time was, advise General Nasser that the American planes are going to be launched to determine what the status of the Liberty was. I have spent a large part of my life flying over the oceans and identifying ships. And this ship was perhaps the easiest ship to identify that was uh, listed in the United States Navy. Equipped with antenna from bow to stern, pointing in every direction. It reminds one of a large, vigorous lobster. And a look that made it extremely easy to recognize. And it appeared from the ferocity of the attack that the intent of the attackers was to sink the ship. Maybe they hoped to have no survivors so that they would not be held accountable for the attack after it occurred. We didn't know who was attacking us. 
They didn't know it was attacking themselves. I don't know how Washington can say, don't go because they're friends of ours. So that's the thing that's always bothered me right there. I never myself accepted the Israeli purported explanation. Um, accidents don't occur through repeated attacks by surface vessels and by aircraft. It obviously was a decision taken pretty high up in, on the Israeli side because it involved combined forces. Um, the ship was flying an American flag. Even if it had been unidentified from a, an, an Israeli point of view, uh, it was a reckless thing for them to do. Suppose it had been a Soviet ship. That could have produced very large problems indeed. George Ball, the brilliant and courageous Undersecretary of State at the time of the 67 war, wrote about the attack on the Liberty subsequently. He said, the ultimate lesson of the Liberty attack was that it had far more effect on policy in Israel than in America. Israel's leaders concluded that nothing they might do would offend the Americans to the point of reprisal. If America's leaders did not have the courage to punish Israel for the blatant murder of American citizens, it seemed clear that their American friends would let them get away with almost anything. We thought Papago would be our escort into Malta. The divers rigged a large canvas over the torpedo hole and it was secured in place using ropes that were passed under the hull and over the main deck. Once the canvas was in place, the Liberty could proceed under its own power towards Malta. Once we were in dry dock in Malta, then came the gruesome task of removing the bodies and the debris from the research. Uh, I was unfortunate enough to draw the first shift as part of our division, which would be used to cut the debris uh, away from the bodies so they could be removed from the research spaces. The first body to come out was almost unrecognizable. Due to being in salt water for six days, the body was almost completely hairless. We fingerprinted the body, put it in a body bag, uh, and moved it out of the spaces. This continued through the night and not into the next day. After 33 days in Malta and the Liberty was repaired, we brought the ship back to Norfolk. The hour was over. The Liberty was home. Over. It will never be over until the truth is known. The cover-up began with the reported casualties. The first word that we had out was before the torpedo attack that we had nine dead and 75 wounded. This has been the number that has almost invariably appeared in the newspapers as an attempt to minimize the nature of the attack, the ferocity of the attack, and the unjustifiable nature of the attack. Some of this in the society uh, for the benefit of the American people. As a matter of fact, uh, in many cases, the press uh, uh, supported the Israeli campaign. Future Judge Advocate General of the Navy, Rear Admiral Merlin Starring, was given less than 24 hours to review the 600-page Court of Inquiry report. In the course of my career as a Navy lawyer, I have been called upon to review and take actions upon uh, hundreds of investigations of various uh, degrees of importance and volume. 
this is the only instance in which a record of such an investigation has been withdrawn from me after I have been asked to review it and that I have not been given an opportunity to complete my advice to the convening authority. As you know, it's a, a voluminous document. And one of the things that uh, I initially had difficulty with, and still do, is the fact that the very first statement of fact that the court arrived at and presented was this. Available evidence combines to indicate the attack on liberty on 8 June was in fact a case of mistaken identity. Now that is the sort of thing in this record that I found great difficulty in supporting from the evidence that was included. I'm convinced that it was withdrawn from me in this instance because of my statement to Captain Boston that I was having serious problems with the evidence that was available to support the statements of fact. The subsequent cover-up, the Israelis maintained that they thought the Liberty was the small Egyptian freighter, the Al-Qusair. This is not credible. Not only was the Liberty flying a large American flag, but it was five times as large as the Al-Qusair, and its profile was unique. It bore no resemblance whatsoever to the Egyptian ship. Tordello was the deputy director at the time of the attack. Tordello, when he received the copy of the, uh, the Israeli uh, mistake explanation, wrote across the top of it a nice whitewash. He didn't believe it at all. And he later wrote another memorandum for the record indicating that uh, he thought that uh, the most likely explanation was that uh, the Israelis attacked the Liberty because uh, they didn't want the Liberty to hear what was going on in the Sinai. Um, and this is the highest professional at NSA. Uh, in addition, the, the uh, director of NSA uh, at the time, Marshall Carter, um, told me that uh, he thought it was deliberate. In addition to that, he was very uh, offended in another memorandum he wrote that um, it appeared that the uh, Johnson administration wanted to cover up the whole thing. They actually wanted to sink the ship so that Israel wouldn't be embarrassed. Admiral Kidd, uh, when he came aboard our ship to interview the survivors, uh, he got us in small groups, three or four or five sailors, and he would ask us questions. The first thing he did is uh, he took off these stars, laid them on the table, and said, listen, open up to me and talk to me just like her. I'm just one of, just like you, one of you. So we did. We trusted him. We opened up with our hearts. We told him exactly the way we felt what happened, what we saw, and when that was done, he put his stars back on, on his lapel, and he ordered us not to say anything to anybody, our families, friends, shipmates, anyone. If we did, we faced the possibility of a court-martial, penitentiary, or worse, and everyone knew what worse meant. Actually, he scared the death out of me. I didn't talk about the attack to anyone for almost 20 years. Not knowing why they did this and what, and not having our government back us then and now. It's, it's an open sore. It's, uh, it's festering uh, to this day. It's not going away. I think it's important that we do have an investigation. I, I would never give up on that until I'm too old to 
come to these things. It needs to be done. And Pete Buecher from the Pueblo said he wouldn't even have gone if he could have known what really happened to us. All he knew was some silly little thing he heard about on the news. In late 1991, Dwight Porter, who was ambassador to Lebanon during the 1967 war, told colonists Evans and Novak that immediately after the attack on the Liberty, the CIA station chief handed him intercepted messages between the Israeli war room and their planes. The pilots were given orders to attack the ship, and they replied immediately that it was an American ship. The Israeli headquarters responded, you have your orders, attack the ship. The pilots tried once again, but it's an American ship. We can see its flag. And headquarters insisted, you have your orders, attack it. And attack it they did, and the consequences are well known. So one of the things I found out was that, uh, that had never been discovered before uh, was the fact that at the time the Liberty was attacked, the NSA also had an eavesdropping plane flying high above the scene of the action. It was an EC-121, and uh, during the entire course of the war, the U.S. Uh, had uh, eavesdropping planes going over the um, area, collecting signals, eavesdropping on what was going on below. And this plane was uh, flying right over the scene of the attack, and I talked to two of the crew members of the plane, and both of them agreed that the, what they heard were comments from both the pilots and the torpedo boat uh, uh, personnel uh, mentioning the U.S. flag. Uh, now that flies in the face of what the Israeli explanation says. The Israeli explanation says nobody on either the plane or the ships ever saw a U.S. flag. Evans and Novak got further confirmation of the Israeli attack from an American-born Israeli major, Seth Mintz, who was in the Israeli war room at the time of the attack. He told reporters, quote, everyone felt that it was an American ship and that it was the Liberty. There were comments about the markings, about the flag. Everybody in the room was convinced it was an American ship, unquote. Mintz told Evans and Novak that the Israelis were guilty of an outrage. True. But the American suppression of the truth was an equal outrage. Well, at the time the Liberty was off the coast of the Sinai, off the coast of uh, uh, where El Arish was on the uh, Sinai Peninsula, um, according to Israeli uh, military historians uh, who, who wrote reports of it at the time uh, and other eyewitnesses, the um, Israeli military was uh, killing prisoners, Egyptian prisoners, uh, committing war crimes, uh, desperate acts of uh, of uh, war crimes in order to, uh, so they wouldn't have to transport the prisoners because they had no place to put the prisoners. They decided to take the most expedient, uh, expedient method and, and just kill them. If the planes dispatched by the Saratoga had continued to the rescue, the Israelis would have been driven off. But Washington took the Israelis at their word. They said they had recognized their error and they apologized. And the attack had already stopped they said, but they were lying. The attack continued for another hour and 20 minutes, during which 25 more American sailors died and 110 more were wounded. All would have been spared if the American planes sent to help them had not been recalled by Washington. 
The point was the attack did take place. There were a lot of reasons that the Israelis would have wanted to hide things from the U.S. And that's why there's a need for investigation. Um, I mean, you're not going to take the, the word of somebody who was uh, the principal person who caused it. Uh, that'd be like uh, taking the word of a defendant in a, uh, in a, in a shooting. Every one of the thousand odd clashes between Syria and Israel between 1948 and 1967 was examined by the UN Supervisory Commission, which found out that only a very, very few have been caused by the Syrians. A few dozen of the clashes were ambiguous and all of the rest were caused by Israel. Well, there were many officers in many nations and they all reported the same thing. Could they all have been lying? Still, we no longer have to rely only on the UN documentation. Moshe Dayan, who commanded the Israeli forces in 1967 and had given the order to occupy the Golan, The interview was kept secret until April 
who was wounded or how severely. This had not been established until days after reaching Malta. The log also minimized the duration of the attack by over an hour and a half, conveniently fitting the Israeli version. It then documented the number of wounded, not as the actual 172, but at the widely published media figure of 75. There should be a congressional committee, both Senate and House, to examine all the data available. And it's, it's getting late to do this because Mike McGonagall, God bless his soul, is gone. I know that Bill was in on board the USS Liberty and the ship was off the coast at Gaza Strip, as I recall. And yet, our government printed, put it in writing, in a United States Senate book of Congressional Medal of Honor recipients that he received his medal for action in Vietnam. Now, to me, that is one of the worst cover-ups in American history. How low can our government go? And it's something that I'd like to see totally investigated and a, a, a closure of this issue because I think President Johnson was the villain on it. I think he recalled the people that were to defend the ship. I have never accepted the Israeli explanation, and so far as I'm concerned, the affair of the USS Liberty remains a scar on the relations between Israel and the United States. Things like this don't happen. Things are caused to happen. There must be some reason, some reason why more is not known. There must be some reason why we didn't react more deliberately, more directly, more positively, as we have reacted many times in our history before and since. As a Marine, I'm proud to say that three members of the Liberty crew were Marines. Two of them died that day, but Bryce Lockwood was decorated for saving sailors' lives. And Bill McGonagall, the skipper of the Liberty, was awarded the Medal of Honor for action above and beyond the call of duty. And I firmly believe after review of the, of the documentation of this film, that an in-depth, honest investigation, inquiry, into what really happened that day is owed to the members of the crew, their family, and all Americans. We need to take some very serious efforts to uh, bring out the full story. And on that basis, I would certainly recommend that we pursue this with diligence. We go to the Congress and, uh, and urge them to conduct a, a, a formal, complete uh, investigation to get the full story about our, the loss of our great ship, the Liberty. In the case of the Liberty, this is the first time, to my knowledge, where a United States warship has been attacked without warning and uh, no action whatever was taken to investigate this situation on the part of the Congress. I have urged this over and over again, and I still think that the attack on the Liberty warrants a full-fledged uh, investigation by the Congress of the United States. Those murdered that day must not have died in vain. The plea for justice by the Navy's most decorated crew should forever haunt us. Americans must never forget this second day of infamy and our own unbalanced foreign policy in the Middle East that precipitated it.
is not a day for politics. I saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land and every one of our lives. It is not the concern of any one race. The victims of the violence are black and white, rich and poor, young and old, famous and unknown. They are most important of all human beings whom other human beings loved and needed. No one can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. And yet it goes on and on and on in this country of ours. Whenever any American's life is taken by another American unnecessarily, whenever we tear at the fabric of our lives, which another man has painfully and clumsily woven for himself and his children, whenever we do this, then the whole nation is degraded. Too often we honor swagger and bluster and the wielders of force. Too often we excuse those who are willing to build their own lives on the shattered dreams of other human beings. But this much is clear. Violence breeds violence. Repression breeds retaliation. And only a cleansing of our whole society can remove this sickness from our souls. For when you teach a man to hate and to fear his brother, when you teach that he is a lesser man because of his color or his beliefs or the policies that he pursues, when you teach that those who differ from you threaten your freedom or your job or your home or your family, then you also learn to confront others not as fellow citizens, but as enemies. To be met not with cooperation, but with conquest. To be subjugated and to be mastered. We learn at the last to look at our brothers as aliens. Alien men with whom we share a city, but not a community. Men bound to us in common dwelling but not in a common effort. We learn to share only a common fear, only a common desire to retreat from each other, only a common impulse to meet disagreement with force. Our lives on this planet are too short. The work to be done is too great to let this spirit flourish any longer in this land of ours. Of course, we cannot banish it with a program, but we can perhaps remember, if only for a time, that those who live with us are our brothers, that they share with us the same short moment of life, that they seek, as do we, nothing but the chance 
to live out their lives in purpose and in happiness, winning what satisfaction and fulfillment that they can. Surely this bond of common faith, surely this bond of common goals can begin to teach us something. Surely we can learn at the least to look around at those of us, of our fellow men. And surely we can begin to work a little harder to bind up the wounds among us and to become in our hearts brothers and countrymen once again. AVR, let me count the ways. Listen online to your choice of seven streams by going to theamericanvoice.com. For those who don't have access to a computer, you can listen on your phone through our phone bridge Monday through Friday from 9 to 9 Pacific by calling 1-712-580-1100. Enter the code 97524-POUND. This is not toll-free, but if you have unlimited long-distance or cell minutes, it's great. Turn on your speakerphone so everyone can hear AVR or go about your daily routine while you listen online or on the phone. We're also on KU Band Satellite and on many FM stations, so look for us there, too. Go to theamericanvoice.com for more details. And while you're there, check out our news page for the latest alternative news. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, 
on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program, for from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people, for I have complete confidence and the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors. For as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, Without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Sola decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news, as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And so it is to the printing press to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance. With your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it, it has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. 
to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I am here with my co-host, Alfred Adisk, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Tuesday, May 5th, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Hi, Melody. I just want to remind the listeners, uh, if you'd like to give us a call today, please, uh, we welcome your calls at one 855 566 3738. That's 855-566-3738. If you'd like to uh, ask us a question or if you have an opinion on the topics that we'll be discussing today, please feel free to call call us. We look forward to your calls. And let's get right to the market report today. We have gold up once again today. And it was uh, briefly over 1200 We're currently at 1193 up four dollars and eighty cents. Silver's up fifteen cents at sixteen dollars and sixty-two. Platinum is down two dollars at eleven hundred and forty-nine. Palladium is up thirteen at seven hundred and ninety-seven dollars. The USDX today is trading lower, point three four at ninety-five point zero nine. Crude oil today is up one point five zero at sixty point. Four three, and the paper markets today. I didn't think the uh, the Dow was down 142 points, 17,927. You have the Nasdaq down 77 points at 49.39. The S&P 25 to the downside at 2,089. The 10-year yield 2.18 percent. The euro trading at 1.12. That was higher. Uh, in the markets today. In the European markets, Germany was down 2.5%, down 284 points. Hong Kong uh, was down uh, just, I, I believe, uh, uh, they took my numbers away at uh, one and third percent to the downside. 
And that looks uh, interesting to see oil so significantly higher. Um, Just a lot of crazy things going on in the Middle East. Everybody's bombing everybody. Nobody knows. (laughs) You know, what a terrible place to be. I mean, I can't even even imagine, Al, living in those conditions. And I'm sure their lifestyles are different than what they are here. So you can't make, you know... you know, apple to apple comparison, but uh, uh, um, you know, I, I can't even imagine. Uh, or are they just so used to it that it's just you another know, day? I can't talked imagine. Talked about this before, but the Middle East. There was a time, a few hundred years ago, when the Muslim world was a source of great knowledge in terms of astronomy. They they created algebra. Um, they were way ahead of much of what was happening in Europe. They were brilliant people. But well. today we seldom see books that are published out of the Middle East. There's books coming from the Muslim faith. And I believe the reason is, and this is not a small thing, and it goes to this issue of the violence that we see in the Middle East. They have sought to emulate Muhammad because Muhammad married his first cousin. And they've been doing this for several centuries. They said, oh, if Muhammad did it, then it's good for us too. And the net result is they have become inbred, according to two reports out of Europe, two studies, serious studies out of Europe. They're saying, look, these people are so inbred that they have a higher incidence of birth defects, mental illness, retardation, can't see in the dark. There are a bunch of problems that are associated with the Muslim faith. They have emulated by marrying their first cousin, which is prohibited in a Jewish faith. Christian, you just can't. We just don't do that in the in the cultures that have come up from Christianity and from the Jewish faith. You don't marry your first cousin. Muslims did. Point I'm making is, given those disabilities, the, their their predilection for violence. And the Muslim world is not necessarily surprising. Yeah, but look at the violence in this country. Oh, we're we're sort of experiencing the same thing. Well, it depends uh, on violence, where you want to point to it. Well, the violence in this country is rising. and uh, No, know, actually it's, it's not. Crime rates are actually down in this country. Well, it depends um, on you get the reports. And well, it depends on what type news, of crime. We get more, we get no more news about it and the rest of that sort of thing. But um, all your cities will say the crime is down, but we know that's not true. It depends on how yeah, the, just it like every be. just like every other report that this country gives. Or the, well, it depends on where you're pointing to it. When you're talking about crime up, absolutely up in the African American community. But where else is it up? You know, maybe in the Mexican community, the illegal alien community. We may be able to point there. But it's still violence in this country. I get that, but and, you need, and, if you're going to look at causes, point, you need to separate things out and look at them and say, okay, this community is more violent than that community, and we need to come up with an explanation as to why that's so. And it may just be that poverty is more endemic in some communities than in others. Or it may be that some communities, you know, again, this Muslims thing, there is, this is not irrational or unreasonable. They have a problem. They have poverty also. Well, I understand that. But, I mean, poverty plus mental illness is not, Perhaps the same common denominator. 
Well, I don't doubt that poverty lies at the heart of much of the violence in this world, but the question is, is that poverty due to personal disabilities or is that poverty due to oppression by others? And the answer may be both, maybe more one than the other, but we aren't going to solve any of these problems by refusing to look at them and diagnose them properly. So anyway, well, these um, are they problems I'm just saying the Middle East is crazy and maybe it is crazy. You know, it seems crazy. My God, the people just keep shooting and blah, 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 blah. Is it only poverty or is it a predisposition to mental illness based on too much inbreeding? No. How long ago was that report? Uh, last year sometime. There were two of them that came out. I think the first one probably came out perhaps close to a year ago, and another one followed six months later, if I, if I recall correctly. But they were serious researchers. This wasn't just some, you know, uh, someone who just came out with an off the, you know, shoot from the hip hypothesis. These people did studies and said, look, this is a problem. And it's extremely it's extraordinary information because it refutes the idea that the Muslim faith is valid. If God is Allah, if he is Allah, why has he subjected his people to the effects of inbreeding? It's good evidence that the faith is false. And the Muslims have effectively been cursed by their determination to emulate Muhammad and marry their first cousins. As a people, not all of them. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm certainly not saying that everybody who's Muslim is is mentally ill. But I am saying that they are apparently, according to reports, there's a disproportionate number of people who suffer from that problem. So, I think it's the sort of thing that you might want to bring to people's attention. I think I'm going to become a Muslim. Really? Is that what you want? Are you sure? I mean, it's the sort of thing that needs to be considered. If you want to be a Muslim, be a Muslim. That's your business. But at least know what the problems are going in. Before you make that decision, you make that change, do a little research on your own and see if these are legitimate problems, see if the information you believe the danger is real. And if it is, then, huh, I don't know. Is that a real faith? True faith? Huh? Or is it some sort of an illusion? Well, let's go ahead and move on to, uh, let's talk about uh, retirement and um, Medicare and Social Security. Well, what have we got here? It's, it's Lindsey Graham. Uh, Lindsey Graham has announced that he's running for president, or he's probably running for president. He says there's a 92.5% probability that he's running for president even if he's still back out of it but one of the things he plans to do is deliver the bad news to the people, the American people and tell them look we got to do something to make social security and medicare keep working and he's doing this despite conventional political wisdom warns that you don't get elected by telling people bad news Why would I- pump sunshine why would anybody want to vote for somebody who says he's 92.5% sure? 
<laughs> that's not well. I'm ninety-two and a half. Okay. I, I'm I'm ninety-two and a half percent sure that I probably won't vote for it, Melody. <laughs> no, that's an, I wouldn't think that's a great way to enter into a, a presidential campaign. Well, I'm ninety-two and a half percent sure. Okay, yeah, just get off. Well, the, you're a good, strong. <laughs> yeah, get off the fence. Either you get in or get out. You know, this isn't Greece. You can't drag it on forever. Just are you in? Are you going to run? Or are you not going to run? Whatever. What, what yeah, that's yeah. who I want for president. Yeah, exactly. All right, go ahead, Al. Did All you? right. Well, in any case, he's warning that the system will fail, and he's advocating that we go back to the Simpson Bowles Commission, which in 2010 issued a well-regarded bipartisan report on how to solve all the big problems related to taxes and spending. Commission leaders Alan Simpson and Erskine Bowl released an updated version in 2013. The reports were widely praised <laughs> and then buried. All right, it was a great idea, but we're doing it. Graham wants to dust off Simpson Bowles and use it as a template for straightening out Washington's finances, which rely too heavily on borrowing. All right, don't want any more borrowing, resulting in a national debt that is now that now exceeds 18 trillion. In fact, John Williams, I've said this uh, probably three times a week for the past year. I don't know, twice, once a week at least, maybe twice. John Williams says the, he calculates the national debt is closer to a hundred trillion, and. Uh, Congressional Budget Office and economist Lawrence Kotlikoff have agreed that the real debt, including unfunded liabilities, is over $200 trillion. All right. So the idea that we have only an $18 trillion national debt is suspect. Never, uh, nevertheless, uh, Graham is complaining that we have an $18 trillion federal debt. And so here's a list of some of the recommendations in the Simpson-Bowles report. Number one, require wealthier seniors to pay a larger share of their Medicare benefits. Not unreasonable, but nobody's going to like it. Seniors aren't going to like paying a, a larger share. If we only do it to the wealthier seniors, we can get away with it, but they aren't going to like it. Raise number two, raise eligibility age for Medicare from 65 to 67. Again, we're going to have people that are going to object to that. Um, we may be able to get away with it, but there are going to be people that are going to object to it and cut back on fees paid to health care providers. Oh, well, the health care providers, there is, ah, you got to give us our money. You got to take the, if you're going to cut costs, you got to cut someplace else. Not, not for us. We need that money. Um, number three, raise the eligibility age for Social Security. Lower the annual cost of living increases and raise the portion of every worker's income subject to Social Security tax withholding. Uh, all they're doing is you won't get a, a Social Security until later in life. You're going to have to pay more to get Social Security in the first place. And who's going to cheer for that? You know? Number four, replace current income tax brackets with three new brackets, 12%, 22%, 28%. Tax investment income, the same as labor income. Again, <clears throat> It's going to be tough to get people to support this just because there will be special interests that are saying, heck no, I don't want any part of that. That's not good for me. 
you know, I'm in favor of a lot of this. It's good. It's bad for the rest of them, and it doesn't hurt me. But the part that hurts me, I can't support that. Well, they go through, and they have more. <clears throat> they have more on the list. And the point is, there are so many special interests that are adversely affected by the recommendations in the Simpson-Bowles report that it becomes very unlikely that we are going to implement Simpson-Bowles until one way or another this economy has nearly collapsed. If American history, recent American history, indicates that the American people are so addicted to government benefits and government subsidies and government exemptions and whatever, that we're just not going to give up any of that. Um, we're going to hang on to whatever suits our special interest, and uh, we're not going to let Senator Graham to be the Republican nominee for president if he's going to come out and give us bad news. Now, it may be that Simpson-Bowles' proposals, they may be brilliant, necessary, and even inevitable. But they are proposals that ultimately offend just about everyone one way or another. And that just doesn't sound like a formula for getting anything done in, in Congress today. You've got to have somebody who's going to say, yeah, that's a good idea. And I doubt that you're going to find that by advocating the, the Simpson-Bowles recommendations. And on top of that, why are we having the problem with Social Security? In large part because of government mismanagement. This isn't a problem where people didn't pay in enough. You paid in enough if the money had been invested properly. I've talked, I've mentioned this in the past, but my my stepdad, back when I was, back in 1958, 59, I remember this. And it stuck in my mind for years, never knew why. It just did. But he explained to me back then. He said, you know, if you took the money that you were required to deposit into Social Security and you put it in the bank, when you started at 18 and you continued to do it throughout your working career, um, it was his understanding, and he, you know, he, he, he received his information from somebody, I don't know, who read it. Uh, I don't remember the source. I was just a kid when he was explaining it to me. But he was explaining that you would have a million dollars when it was time for you to retire. With compounding and compounding and so on, you'd have that. You don't have a million dollars right now when you're going to retire on Social Security. You got a thousand to thirteen hundred dollars a month. That's what you got, all right? You could have had a cool million if government had been responsible, but they said forget the responsibility. The Social Security you've made the contribution, and government is going to spend it right now, and we'll put an IOU in the Social Security vault. But we're not going to leave the money there for you. We'll get it from future taxpayers. Well, they've made just huge miscalculations. It was mismanaged. They promised that if you made the contribution, they'd guarantee you'd have money for your old age and so on. Well, you weren't going to have that much money. You're not going to have as much as was promised. And people reasonably can ask, you know, I paid mine. Why aren't I getting what I was, at least what I was promised? And... Lindsey Graham, Senator Graham, was coming out, and he said, well, we have to cut back on this. We have to raise taxes on the people that are still paying, and we have to cut back on the benefits for people that are getting ready to retire in order to make the system work. 
And the truth is, if they'd made the system work all along by investing the money rather than spending it, we wouldn't have to go through this. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedars from Financial Survival, and it's time for us to take commercials, Melody. I wanted to say something. Well, you can say something when we come back. All right. Mm. All right, folks, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Does the cost and risk of conventional health care concern you? Wouldn't you prefer inexpensive solutions to health problems rather than disease management? If so, tune into Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver. 
what's next, Melody? Well, I want to remind the listeners we're going to carry through the special from yesterday. And uh, these are actually prices based on Friday's numbers. Gold and silver are up the past two days, so this really is a great special. 21-ounce silver eagles plus one-tenth of an ounce gold eagle, $538. And if you add a mint state 64, $20 St. Gaudens to the order, it brings it up to our special $2,015. So you can buy either or. You can buy the $538 special. You can add uh, the Men's State 64 $20 St. Gaudens for $2,015. Give us a call at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. And I just want to remind listeners, yesterday I did a comparison on some of the online sellers and uh, our prices, uh, you know, 99% of the time were lower. And uh, we were pretty much all the same on, on Gold Eagles, you know, depending on whatever day and whoever runs specials and so forth. I just want to remind you, does anybody remember Tolving in California? How many millions of dollars did he end up costing those who trusted him, people who thought that they could get product below wholesale or that there wasn't any other dealer in the country that could match their price there's reasons there's reasons for that and uh, so i ask you are you ready to send your money to, to folks who sell you product at below wholesale i, I mean you're just asking for trouble there's well, reasons. the average person doesn't know how to determine wholesale oh trust me to- those who know those who a lot don't, but I'll guarantee you a lot who know that the, the, the price is that significantly lower have already shopped around. Mm-hmm. And so, no, a large volume of folks know. And uh, well, so the point you just have to it, be some careful. Some people have some extraordinary sales, but when they're doing that, it's evidence that they are cash poor. And they are willing to essentially give away product in order to generate enough income to pay the rent and pay the phone bills and so on. Uh, They need cash flow, and therefore they are prepared to sell at almost amazingly low prices. They're going to take losses in order to because they have to have cash. Well, what what are my signals that it's the business for business to be healthy and stay in business? You got to be able to make enough money to continue to to continue to get by. You don't have to be greedy, but you can't just be giving product away. You know, I sent uh, David Krieger. He, he's been on this program a couple of times, and I I sent him a little note and saying, "What do you think of these guys?" Blah blah blah. And he says, "You know," he says, "It seems every one of these slick operators who sell cheap." end up going out of business and taking someone else's money with them. Mm-hmm. Or they spend they, they, they spend that money on wine, women, and song. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, we don't know what the reasons, how they're doing it, why they're doing it, but we also know history has a tendency to repeat itself when it comes to anyone, no matter what business that you're in. If you're selling it below market, um, be careful. 
Well, you can't. Be careful. Uh, you can't do that for long. It's you like can't do it. I mean, it's Cadillac that simple. For $10, Not like our government. An automobile. Something's wrong here. Either the cars are hot or I'm not going to be able to deliver. It's a Ponzi scheme. Something is strange going on. This is the same idea. You mentioned that you were looking into, I don't think, I don't know that you want to make mention of the name of the business, but at least one of them you're calling up and you, you wanted to see what your competitors were doing and asked, who are you guys? And you couldn't get an answer. They wouldn't tell you who they were. I didn't call them specifically, but on their website, I tried oh. to find their names. They, 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 you know, contact us and who we are. But when you look under who we are, I couldn't find any names or anything like that. So. Well, it's another. And they've been around, and they're very popular. They're very. It's very popular, but. Let's get back to Social Security. You know, I've got a second article on I Social I just wanted to say this before. This is what I wanted to say prior to the break is, you know, everybody always blames like it's the baby boomers' fault for getting old and they're going into the program because there's so many of us and we're going to destroy the system. No, the system is destroyed by poor management. And, and, and by going in there and stealing the funds out of there. And they always talk about Social Security and Medicare, but no one ever talks about Medicaid. Do you ever hear anyone ever talking about reforming Medicaid or cutting those programs? And, of course, Medicaid is a social health care program for families and individuals with low income and limited resources. But you never hear about Medicaid. It's always Social Security, and it's always Medicare that affects the majority of, of senior citizens. So, anyway. Another article here that touches on Social Security. This is from Market Watch. Three out of four retirees receiving reduced Social Security benefits. Three out of four receiving reduced Social Security benefits. That's the headline. Growing numbers of workers expect to rely heavily on Social Security as a major source of income in retirement. But almost three-quarters of current retirees are receiving reduced benefits. It's according to a new report, Gallup survey. And they said... Uh, what it comes down to, the best way to maximize Social Security is to delay claiming benefits until full retirement age, which is climbing gradually to 67 or beyond. A person due to receive a benefit of $1,000 at full retirement age of 66 would receive only $750 again per month at age 62. So if you sign up for Social Security age 62, you get 750 a month. If you sign up at 66, you get 1,000 a month. The earliest age it was, the, the, the 62 is the earliest age most people can claim. And if you wait until you're 70 to sign up, you can get $1,320 per month. All right. So they're just saying, look, the math is here that you can get more if you will be patient and you wait a little while to fill in your application, but they go on and say that math isn't stopping many workers from claiming benefits early. All right? Social Security is structured to say you get the most if you wait, you take the benefits late, but people are taking the benefits early. And as a result, 73% were receiving benefits, reduced benefits, because of entitlement prior to full retirement age. This is interesting. It's not an indictment of the 
Social Security system. These are just rules. But it does indicate something about people in this country. Three out of four Americans are either so wore out they can't continue working after age 62, or they're so fed up with their jobs that they can't stand working beyond age 62, or they've been retired, they've been fired, and they can't get a job at age 62, and therefore they have to accept the lower Social Security rate of $750 per month. A lot of them are being bought out by their corporations to retire early. And I think, too, Al, once you get to 62, maybe 65, maybe you think, well, maybe I'm not going to live to 70. So yeah, I think your, your, your thought process changes also. I'm sure it does. And I've, I've had people who, I mean, they have nice pensions with, you know, some, some large corporation or something, which always makes a difference, too. And they figured out, well, you know, we actually, what do we lose if we figure it out? Uh, if we wait till we're 70, but we take it now. They really don't lose that much, considering they're 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 taking the funds for how many years? Eight years. So you figure that up, and then you figure out how much longer you're going to live past seventy. You know, it, it kind of washes itself out. I understand that there's, but my my point is just that it indicates people are under a lot of financial stress. Absolutely. Uh, financial stress. You know. Psychological stress, they just can't stand working in that cubicle another day, or maybe they just can't get a job. My question is, if you don't have, we've talked about this how many times on this program, the amount of savings that people have, who can live, or I know lots of people do, lots of people do. I know lots of people who live on $1,000 at full retirement age of 66. Or seven hundred and fifty dollars if you don't have any savings. It's difficult. I know it's difficult. It's it's one of those things. It's again, this Possible, is one of those situations that just indicates the system is fragmenting. It's disintegrating, mm-hmm. and the promises that were made that the government's going to take care of you. You give us money now, okay, and then we'll see that you get money when you retire. Well, you can see where that's going. Those promises are not being kept, not to the extent that they should have been. We're dealing with mismanagement. And we could say it's mismanagement, but it's not just mismanagement. Government intends to get your money and use it for the greater glory of the government. And they've run Social Security for a long time, and the government has profited from it for a considerable period of time. And now it's becoming time to pay off. And government's saying, wait a second, we, 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 we can't afford to pay that off right now. We're going to have to cut your benefits and raise taxes on the rest of them who can't yet collect Social Security. And it was like Melody said earlier in the program, the problem here is not simply that the system was defective as originally designed. The problem is the government has simply exploited the system. It's been mismanaged by your congressman, your senator. They're gonna. They've got their pensions, and their pensions are gonna make your little social security look like chump change. They can feed that. What you get for social security, they can spend on their dog, and keeping their dog through their golden years. Um, I'm exaggerating, but you get the idea. Uh, so what are you gonna do? I'm not. I'm not sure, but 
the part that's unfair about this is that government made the promises and people who have contributed and played by the rules are going to wind up having to do, having to survive in their retirement with less. That's all. Government promised X amount of dollars for you. It turns out now you're not going to get that because they can't afford to keep their promise. This is part and parcel of an argument I've been making for probably five years. And it was after I first read John Williams and realized that the debt, the national debt, is much larger than the government admits. And I advocated the idea repeatedly that what can't be paid won't be paid. Which seems obvious if you, I mean, just what, that's no big insight. That seems obvious. But the, the point is we are so deep in debt that we are not going to be able to pay all the debts. And that includes the benefits that are due to retirees, Social Security retirees. And it includes benefits that are due to welfare recipients and the subsidies that are due to farmers and corporations and whatever. We've come to depend on government. It was easy money. It was free money. We took it and we liked it. And that's just human to do that. But it's just as in the same sense that it's just natural for a fish to bite at a bug in the water. All right? Except maybe the bug is a fly on the end of a line. And next thing you know, you're hooked. We've behaved irresponsibly. The... We're so deep in debt, we can't pay all the debts. And the danger of that, from my perspective, is not just sit back and say, oh my gosh, the debts aren't going to be paid. You have to look at it and realize for every debt, all right, for every, for every man who owes $1,000, there's another man who's holding a piece of paper who says he's treating that piece of paper as an asset. And you say, I've got a, I've got a $1,000 that instrument here, and that means I'm worth $1,000. And if I get 100 of them, I have $100,000. My net worth is $100,000. And what I'm saying is if the debts are substantially repudiated, we can bet that the, the correlative assets are also going to be repudiated. And there's the great danger. If we only could wipe out the debt, it wouldn't be a problem. Well, it might be, it may be a kind of problem, but it wouldn't be as significant as we're going to wipe out paper assets. And all of a sudden, there isn't, nobody's going to have enough money to go out and pay for a new school or a new shopping center or a new business, a new car. The paper assets will disappear along with the debt. We are getting to that point, and... Lindsey Graham talked about him earlier in the program. Him coming out and say, "Look, we got to do something about Social Security." It's just a way of saying the government knows we are getting to the point where what can't be paid won't be paid. It may be that Mr. Graham's or Senator Graham's concerns about Social Security. It may be that they're premature in the sense that we won't do anything significant to Social Security until the last possible moment, which could be if we can leave government estimates 15, 20 years from now. All right. And that's probably what will happen. But there's also a high probability that if government says Social Security is going to go broke, 
in 20 years. I'm willing to bet you that it's going to go broke within 5 to 10 years. I, I could be wrong, but I don't trust the government's numbers. I don't trust their projections. They say, oh, we're good for another 20 years, and then the whole thing will dissolve. I think we're good for maybe 5, 10 at the max would be my guess. That's all it is is a guess, but still that's my guess. Uh, we are at that moment when what can't be paid won't be paid, and it's going to be trouble for all of us. Let's take some commercials. Melody and I will be back on Financial Survival in just a moment. Please stay tuned. compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. The extra benefit of thyme herb is that it soothes nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for time, tincture, and tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International 704-875-8010 or online at thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. Uh, we've got an article here on Hillary, Hillary Clinton, of course. And this was in the Washington Times. Top Dem money man departs because Clinton hasn't answered ethics questions. Uh, a top Democratic money man 
recruited by Hillary Rodham Clinton's presidential campaign, has put fundraising activities on hold, saying he can't do it with a clear conscience because the former Secretary of State has too many unanswered questions swirling around her. We're talking about New York businessman John Cooper, who Team Clinton enlisted for its elite core of early fundraisers known as Hill Starters. Now, uh, this to me is, you know, a small article, and it all, all it says essentially is that Hillary can't even hang on to her own fundraisers. There are questions about her behavior at Benghazi. There are questions about email, having their own private server. All right, that she supposed that that the information in those emails should have been made available in government records, and instead it's been apparently destroyed, where no one can find what was in those email. Um, there are questions about Hillary's character. There's questions about her competence. You know, what we can't doubt is her determination to be president of the United States. I don't know that anyone has ever wanted to be president more than Hillary. Huh? It may be, but she has a level of determination. But is it determination or is it obsession? I don't think that she's ultimately, you know, I'm not a fan. I'm not a supporter. And just doing this, reading this one article, again, a top Democrat money man departs. That's the sort of thing. I think that Hillary's campaign will fizzle. I don't think, I'm inclined to believe that Hillary will be out of the race before the Democratic primary is held. Or at least before the Democratic nominating convention is held. She's going to drop out during the primaries, maybe even before the primaries, I suspect. Can I prove it? Nope. I'm only guessing. That's all I have. But it's not going to surprise me. She's got a bunch of things that just don't, just doesn't work for me, and I don't think it will work for most people. And I've said for how long she wouldn't be a con- you know a contender. You know she's got she's got too much baggage. Nobody mm-hmm. even wants to be around her. And there's also I believe the elite don't want her in there because uh, I mean even as much as she is one of them. I mean a lot of the stuff her emails and so forth. Even though they have disappeared to some degree, um, they you know they were released and uh, um, so it, it's. You know, she's another distraction, and I believe O'Malley is going to be the Democratic nominee. Well, we'll see. There's time for other Democrats to jump in on this. But even Bill Clinton is not going to actively help her. I've seen an article about Bill back oh, a week or ten days ago. Well, he can't. He's going to be in the background. Yeah, he's background advisor, but he says, I'm not a good campaigner anymore. I'm not angry about anything. I just want to be around my grandchild and enjoy that. Yeah, well, you know, look at his foundation. There's so much heat there. He, he'd be terrible for her campaign, well, even if her campaign problem. survived. You know, he, he's but again, too busy. It's just, you know, the rats are just a bunch of thinking ship. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah true. Hey, Al, here I have an article. A 16-year-old are allowed to vote in Hyattsville, Maryland. Uh, 16-year-old voters headed to the polls today for a historic election, the first 
says the town changed its minimum voting age. The teams went to the polls to vote for elected offices in the city, including the mayor and 10 council members. The minimum voting age was changed earlier this year after a public hearing and a city council vote. Hyattsville is the second city in the country to lower the voting age to 16 after Tacoma Park did so two years ago. Yay or nay? I think it's interesting. It's kind of amusing. I don't know whether it's good or bad. It's sort of thing where we might be able to have the high school council could become the city council. You know, we could get more bang for the buck or whatever, have one councilman serving two purposes, one for the city and one for the high school. Hard to say. I think, uh, if anything, if I were going to change ages, I think I would increase the age... You know, you only have to be 35 years old to be president. I don't think anybody knows enough at that age. And I wouldn't have agreed with that when I was that age. You, you know, I get that. And here I am, senior citizen. And so it's not surprising that I might think that we should have a higher age. You know, they set the ages. You could be 25 to be a congressman, 30 to be a senator, and 35 to be a president. In the in the Constitution, if I recall correctly, I think that's correct. I don't have it here in front of me, but I believe well, that's in those, correct. Yeah, in those days, you were dead by 50. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Average, that's right. The average life expectancy was 50 years old. Those numbers weren't, those those ages were not unreasonable 200 years ago. Today, I think they are. And I think there's a big problem where we elect congressmen and congresswomen based on their on their appearance, which is to say, typically on their youth. We see that more than we should. We get that rather than character. We might be better off if we added five or ten years to each. Can't be a house. Can't be in the House of Representatives until you're 30, maybe 35. Can't be a senator until you're 40, maybe 45. Can't be president. Until you're 50 years old. You know, the world is more complex. It takes time for people to understand it. It takes time for people to generate a sense of values for themselves and a sense of ethics. And they say, these are lines. I see these lines and I'm not going to cross these lines. Those lines aren't clear to younger people. And in fact, it's not just clear. It's not just that, they're, that the lines aren't clear when you're younger. Insofar as you can see the lines, they become a challenge to jump over them. You get older and say, no, I think I can play by the rules. All right. I would argue if we're going to, you know, we're going to talk about ages, you're going to let 16-year-old kids vote. I don't have, I don't know. I I think it's I think a little it's bit a silly. I think it's silly on one level. But on the on the flip side of that coin, we're going to change ages. Let's increase the age you need to be to run for political office. I think it's silly at this point in time because you only have two locations that have changed the age. However, if it became a trend and you see more and more 16-year-olds voting, no. I, you know, I'm talking, you know, way down the road. But, I don't even know. I know. think I did an article that... But, just post a little article on my blog today about robots and pointing out, you know, I started out by talking about Arnold Schwarzenegger and the, the Terminator movie from back 1984, 
if I recall correctly. And I thought, yeah, I thought it was a cool movie, but I never expected to see any of those Terminator-style robots in my lifetime. I thought this was down the road, if ever. But in fact, we're getting very close to them. Right. If they're not, if they don't already exist, we're getting to a point where, in my opinion, we might see Terminator-type robots. They might be available for making war or performing police activities or whatever. They might be available in as little as three years. They're making some extraordinary... Well, the point is that in the 31 years... I think it's 31 since 1984. Um, the world has changed so much more rapidly than I thought it would. And you look out the door, you look at videos, you see what's going on, you say, oh my God, it's changing faster and faster and faster. I don't know how many people are going to be able to keep up with the change. You know, things are happening. This goes a little bit to the idea of how young can you be? You know, in fact, if I, how young should you be to be able to run for public office? Maybe you need to be older just to have a better grasp of what's happening and things are changing so rapidly. I'm not sure that the youth is prepared to deal with the problems. They think they are, of course. When I was a kid, what couldn't I do? You know, you knew. Mm-hmm. I can do it all, you know. You get older and you realize, no, maybe I can't. And maybe I never could. I thought I could. But maybe that was never true. You need that, in my opinion, to hold high public office. And maybe age gives you a way of dealing with the changes. Not only dealing with the changes, but remembering what to try to preserve despite the technological changes. Complex business. In fact, when I think about it, maybe instead of allowing 16-year-old kids to vote. Maybe we shouldn't allow anybody to vote until they're 25 or at least 21. Maybe we should raise the voting age and raise the age for politicians. I don't think it would necessarily, I don't expect that to happen, but I don't think it would necessarily be a bad idea. The world certainly is changing. And, and rapidly, accelerating. And rapidly. Well, accelerating. It's combining. It's, it's, um, and not all the changes are, are good. I mean, that's the problem. I understand that. And, and that's the difficult part to understand. You have all these changes but yet I fail to see the positive in so many. Sure, yeah, okay, so you can watch your, your parents in their home without having to visit them to see if they're going to fall down and break their ankle. You know, your home is monitored with sensors. Uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, apps being created. So, you know, the passenger on the airline, if, if he has a rapid heartbeat or he's sick, you can monitor him. It's all about monitoring. And, you know, and you, could, you could say these things are all good and fine, but yet are they? Well, it's just like the robots. Yeah. I had two articles, one from uh, one from the Japanese Times, and that was the one that did Another one from Misha's uh, Global Trend Economic Forecast or whatever. I can't remember the precise name, but Ms. Shedlock's work. He's talking about robots. Points out they just did a survey, and they did a study in Germany where they calculated that, what, 
two-thirds of German workers would be replaced by robots, but they said it would be in uh, several decades. Well, several decades to me is 30 to 50 years. I'm not worried about 30 to 50 years from now. But we had another one from the Japanese Times, and they're pointing out that China bought, I don't remember, 25% of the robots that were manufactured in the world this last year. And they f intend to fully, they intend that 80% of their industries, their biggest industries, are going to be robotized within five years, by 2020. All right? What that means is that robots are not just cheaper than American labor, they're cheaper than Chinese labor. China was built on cheap labor in the last 20 years, and all of a sudden the robots are going to be replacing 80% of the industrial workers in China within the next five years. The next five years, what is China going to do when 80% of the people working in their industry don't have jobs? How are they going to deal with that? And how are we going to deal with it in this country when we have to, when we have to face up the fact that the law, these robots are not just cheaper than 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 American workers. They're cheaper than Chinese workers, which means these things are economically irresistible. And in a sense, we are already entering into a war with robots. They're not coming to shoot at us or the kind of fight we saw in the Terminator, but what we are seeing, they're taking our jobs. And five years, 80% in China, what is it going to be in this country? How are we really going to reduce unemployment rates in this country if we have more and more robots coming in? And they will if they're that cheap. It's cheaper than imported labor. These robots, in the end, are probably cheaper than illegal aliens. You don't have to worry about losing your job to an illegal alien. You may have to worry about losing your job to a robot, however. And what are we going to do if 80% of the industrial workers in this country, and it'll be a big chunk of all the workers in this country, lose their jobs to robots? What's going to happen when many of us no longer have jobs? We are no longer competitive. We are no longer productive. And that means maybe it means we're no longer necessary. And we see that happening, and we see the other technological changes that are happening, and you can imagine that the world is going to change dramatically. Not a little bit. We're not going to ease into it. There are changes that are taking place right now, as I'm speaking, that are so enormous. We don't even know what they are right now, but they're taking place right now. They may not impact us for another 18, 24 months. I don't know when the, when the stuff hits the fan, but the world is changing so fast. How do you protect yourself? You need to think about it and come to the best conclusion you possibly can. We're out of time, folks. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. will be back tomorrow in the meantime. The good Lord bless you, me, Melody, and Frank, the producer. Bye-bye.
for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right. Delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Branch Ministry, 
And now, here's Pastor Dan. Greetings, saints, and welcome to the Messiah's Branch Prophecy Hour. We are broadcasting live from the Flint Hills of Kansas, and we're on the American Voice Radio Network. Today's date is April 30th, turmoil most just do not realize it but we are in the time of the end and that's the time before messiah's glorious return so it's time to get out of sin the world and look to the holy city look to the one who suffered and died for you please make this choice tonight if you need help after this program call me i'll pray for you or with you if you get the machine please leave your name your number your prayer request and or message the phone number, of course, is 620-878-4682, 620-878-4682. And an emergency, my cell phone number is 316-619-4886, 316-619-4886. You, know, you can always find updates with the breaking news, our ministry, radio program archives, and our mailing address, at our, which is at our blog, which is very simply, prophecyhour.com that's prophecyhour.com of course you got to put the www thing in it but if you google prophecyhour.com i'm sure you will find our website anyway we are a national satellite radio program and please pray about supporting airtime because airtime does cost and as you know we don't sell anything on this program and so we need your kind donations to keep us going okay our program archives, that's what you need to know. Well, those can be found at prophecyhour.com. Over there also, in the main column, you'll see breaking news. I keep that going pretty much where a lot of it is what you'd call secular news, things that you need to know about. I believe all news is related to Bible prophecy, but you'll find a lot of the breaking news over there and articles about Bible prophecy. When I see a good article, I'll post it there. You can sign up for those emails uh, on the right. Uh, if you scroll down, it says PNS. You can subscribe there, and you'll get alert every time one of those are sent out. Or you can just simply go to the blog site a couple times a day and have a look. Now, the blog site is very smartphone-friendly, and also uh, our radio archives. If you scroll, just look right over there on the right. There's a place that says End Time Radio Archives, and that will lead you to branch.podomatic.com. Over there, you can find an app for your Android or for your iPhone. And so go over there and get you an app. And I, as I realize that at least 50% of the people that listen to radio nowadays, I hear, are listening on their smartphones. Okay, now a prayer, and uh, we'll get right to the program. But one other thing I want to challenge you to do is share these radio programs with others. Help us get out there, get the word out there, and also that will bring support for the Wichita Mission Church. Okay, now a prayer will bring on your nice guest and see what he has to say. 
Dear Heavenly Father, in Yeshua HaMashiach's name I pray. Father, I pray the radio goes according to your will and not mine, and nor our guests will. Because, Father, you're the only one that knows what the truth is. You're the only one that knows how to really do radio. We don't know how to do anything, and we can't do anything without you. So we ask that you give us the what to go out on radio, but give everybody out there ears and wish to hear the truth. So please, Father, bless this program tonight. Amen and amen. Well, our guest tonight is Daniel Holdings. He's a former businessman and award-winning public speaker. He also is turned author. This native Californian often jokes that he just woke up from a few years ago. In doing so, he experienced a significant paradigm shift in his thinking. And that he has awakened has made him deeply aware of the intimate and dangerous transition that is about to be thrust onto the United States and the world. Events have brought mankind to the pinnacle of history, whether it's a certain global financial collapse, a sun-going-wild UFOs, interloping planet in our solar system, increased interdimensional and demonic activity, or Israel being at the center of World War III. Daniel has joined the many voices in the warning of the approaching danger. This is not a simple conspiracy theory or alarmism. He's formed his opinions based on facts, however uncomfortable those facts may be. He has written three books. They are called Three Days in the Belly of the Beast, As the Darkness Falls, and Between the Veil. He says that these books, while fiction, have turned out uh, to be prophetic. He also is the host of the Hebrew Nation's radio program, called Prepare the Way. I haven't ever heard him on radio, but we'll sure listen to him tonight. Welcome, Daniel. Are you there with me? Pastor Dan, thank you so much, brother, for having me on tonight. It's an honor, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Well, amen. Uh, So, brother, uh, how long have you been on the Hebrew Nation? Uh, I haven't been on Hebrew Nation, but probably two or three months now, uh, I had another blog talk show, The Cutting Edge. I talk about much of the same things that you talk about these days. Uh, and I've also done, you know, lots of guest appearances on radio for over the years. So, uh, But Hebrew Nation is a relatively new event. Okay. Well, we'll have to check you out over there, and we encourage the listeners to do so. And also, your blog uh, spot is DanielHoldings.com, is it not? It is. DanielHoldings.com is, is my website. There are articles I post there from time to time. Uh, a couple of interesting articles are on there for your your, your, your listeners' benefit, uh, and we can get into some of that tonight, I think. But pertinent to the discussion at hand, uh, I think that they'll find those things interesting. Amen. Well, I really liked, uh, well, I decided I I wanted to talk to you about CERN, and most people are really unaware of all these things that are going on with it, and you wrote a wonderful article about it, but as I was at Hebrew Nations, uh, just before your article got posted, there was a a girl over there that wrote one uh, also, and it really astonished me because she said something about seeing being. Um, why don't you take us into CERN for the people? What is CERN? CERN is a European organization for nuclear research. And don't ask me why it's called CERN. Those are the initials of the previous uh, organization's name, and they just kept the initials CERN. But CERN is a, a kind of a blanket organization uh, where these 
physicists are doing the various things that physicists do. Now, more pertinent to your question, I think, though, is they are operating something on the Franco-Swiss border called the Large Hadron Collider. So what's the Large Hadron Collider? The Large Hadron Collider, folks, is the world's biggest machine. And I'm not kidding. It is huge, and it's buried 600 feet underground. In addition to that, it is in a, a circle form, and it, it, is, it covers about 27 kilometers, which is about 17 miles wide of this farmland uh, on the border of France and Geneva. Uh, up top, there are, there are several, uh, what they call, they call them L1, L2, L3. these are facilities that the, you can enter into uh, the, the various uh, elevators that will take you down to this, this uh, machine. Now, what, what the machine is, it's, a, it's basically this, Pastor Dan, it is a, they call it a beam tube, but it's, it's, it's basically this circular tube underground where they are running subatomic particles in, in parallel. And what they do is they take these, these beams of subatomic particles, they bring them into alignment, and they crash the particles together, thus making it an atom smasher. Well, the interesting thing is that in order to get the, the particles to go around in a circle, they have it in this, uh, they use magnets to bend the, the, the particles to go around in a circle, but the magnets get hot, and so they use a cryogenic system, a closed circuit, where they, they freeze these particles and these magnets at minus 231 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, that is colder, folks, than the ex-planet Pluto on the outskirts of our solar system. That is mighty cold. So what they are doing down there, Pastor Dan, is research, apparently is what they say. Now, uh, you probably know this, but your audience may not. When they were operational two years ago, they were doing something. Uh, they were searching for what's called the God particle or the Higgs boson. It is a, uh, a, set, a subatomic particle that they believe that they could see it. It would, it would confirm uh, some of their theories about why things uh, have mass. In other words, why things hold together. But it, isn't it interesting, Pastor Dan, that the Word tells us that the Father holds all things together by advance. Yeah, so they were looking they were looking for uh, the scientific reason but, but, uh, for, for this. Now, in addition to that, they closed down that facility uh, in, in 2013 to revamp it, to make it more powerful. And their goal is to double the power that they were, that they were using back then. And it has just come back online this month in April of this year, uh, and they're not even up at full power. They are they are they are doing uh, calibrations and testing. But uh, Pastor Dan, even with these very beginning uh, experiments that they are doing, some of the things that they are are causing are just downright scary. I think. Yeah, amen. Let's let's talk about some of the more controversial things of it. And and like for instance, the the day that they fired it up, there was an earthquake in Nepal. 
Well, that was actually not only the day. That was the second time they fired up. After Dan, it was at the exact moment they fired up. The exact, exactly. actually not when they fired up, but the exact moment when it hit its its highest power. Now, folks, you got to understand something. This is a mechanism, a machine that is buried deep underground, and it, these these waves, this this force that it causes just travels through the earth, and it's no wonder that we're seeing that kind of thing. But you know what, Pastor Dan, you know, this could be listening to us and go, okay, that's just coincidence. It just happened to, 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 to go off on that uh, at the same time. Well, when they, when they first cranked it up last week, they cranked it up and they were reporting that they hit, I think it was 5 TEV. TEV stands for trillion, get this, folks, it stands for trillion electron volts. That's the power that they're putting through this thing. Now, they hit 5 TEV, at least they said they did, but they cut off the chart because this information is piped all throughout the world. So they cut off the chart, and our sources say that it really looks like they hit at least 10 TEV, which is unbelievable because if you understand that the last uh, time they were doing experiments, they didn't go any stronger than 6 TEV. When you, when you start looking at this kind of power, it can only, in the subatomic realm, it can only have repercussions in the real world that we see. But when they did that, uh, when they did that, they captured uh, via SOHO A and SOHO B. Those are satellites that uh, rotate around the sun, and they also look back at the Earth to uh, monitor the magnetosphere. That's the invisible shield around the Earth to protect us from sun rays and radiation. Well, that magnetosphere, at the very same time they cranked it up, and during for the duration of that uh, experiment, was being battered like it was being hit with a baseball bat. And then when the experiment stopped, it went back to normal. So you have two things. You have that evidence last week, and then the Nepal earthquake would just happen a few days ago. I mean, it's unbelievable what this thing can do. Well, some of the other reports I've seen and, and some of the things that I've been looking at is, is like what they're trying to do. Are they, you know, with this, uh, we'll let you tell us about the goddess Shiva that's outside, but um, point being, folks, these folks, I heard, uh, and in fact, there was an article by one somebody that's on your Hebrew Nation radio. Um, she said that as they were shutting it down the last time, that they saw other, they saw beings from another dimension uh, in it as they were shutting it down. Um, there's a lot of talk about how these people are trying to open a portal, or maybe, uh, if you will, Stargate to another. A dimension, and you know this may be see what who knows. Some people are even speculating this could be a portal to the bottomless pit or to you know to let d- demonic things into our world. Now, what's amazing? Did you see the uh, uh, video or happen to uh, uh, with the people doing this really weird dance outside of uh, CERN? No, I hadn't seen that. There's a video, because I went exploring last night, so I'd be up on the subject to talk to you, and I came across the video I had never seen before, and sometime uh, just recently, before they they opened it up, in the, the platform area in front of CERN, they have what they called an opera, and they did this strange dance 
um, these men and a woman did this strange dance that looked like some kind of a tribal dance um, that you would be, you know, conjuring up other gods, something like if they were, and, I, and not, like if you might see black men doing in an African nation, you know, what I'm talking about, um, swinging their arms around and doing that, And but these, these, these men were doing it, they were fully dressed, they were dressed as CERN operators and had on CERN hard hats, and they were doing this weird dance in front of the portal. Now, to me, that's a little weird, what do you think? Well, that's, Dan, we, we need to understand something about CERN. These scientists are agnostics or they're atheists, at least they proclaim to be, but they are very spiritual. They are very religious, but their religion is not your and my religion. Their religion is science, and they truly believe that there is, in fact, uh, a parallel, the, the, things, the, the physicists are actually saying this, that there are parallel dimensions and, and uh, interdimensions that we are going to be able to see, that we hope to see. So this is what they're trying to do. Now, when you couple that with the symbology that is just enveloped in sun, you mentioned one thing, the goddess Shiva that stands out, the main door of the facility, then there is this undertone of a religious mind. But, you know, I, I, you said something about interdimensional beings, and, and I need to go back for just one second. In, in my book, uh, I, I wrote my book, Three Days in the Belly of Beast, it, it has to do with the Large Hadron Collider. It's a fiction book. And somebody ran that book, as you know, Pastor Dan, they ran it. In the Torah code, they found in the Torah code, along with some of my name and some of the storylines in that book, the storylines have to do with son, and that befuddled me. I wondered why that was so important to the Lord that he put that in the Torah code. Well, it, it comes it come about that after that came out, another person sent me an article, and I think I told you this off the air, he sent me an article from an Austrian newspaper about the day that they ended up shutting down CERN uh, un, uh, in an unscheduled shutdown. And this article was from a mainstream Austrian newspaper. It was in German. I had it translated, and the article said on the front page, said that they saw something on their computer screen, some interdimensional being on their computer screen. And it scared them so bad that they shut it down. And they came up with this story about there was a, a problem with the bean tubes or whatever the case may be. Now, the thing is, they squelched that, that, uh, that, that article or that story, and they pulled all those papers. It wasn't even in circulation for half a day, and they pulled all those papers. I just happened to, to get one from somebody that got it before they pulled it. Now, right. that was back in 2009. Pastor Dan, they have been looking for stuff like that since way back then. When you have physicists, now keep in mind, people, these are not just some nuts, right? They, they are, let me, let me go back and tell you that the LHC, as I said, was a, is the world's biggest machine. It costs billions and billions and billions of dollars to build and to run and to upgrade for that matter. There's a hundred different countries involved in this project, and over 10,000 scientists 
involved in this project. These are all big brain people, Pastor Dan. These aren't loons, right? These aren't fringe people. These people are supposed to be the smartest people on the planet, in other words. And and they are fixated on interdimensional beings and parallel universes. Now, that should make all of us go, what? There was a a physicist from CERN that came out uh, most recently, just last month, and he stunned the world, and he said that CERN does, and he's he's on the project, he's one of the head guys. We don't know what the heck we're doing. We need to take a step back and consider the consequences of our actions. That's that's a CERN guy on the project. Even Stephen Hawking, Stephen Hawking, the 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 preeminent physicist of our time, has although he didn't have any problems with CERN during the first experiments back uh, 2013 and before, he has serious problems with the uh, with the uh, facility now and and their experiments because what he has said is that they are putting the Earth in jeopardy. Now, that just blows my mind. These people are in the know. They know what's going on, and they are very concerned at what's going on. So, okay, that's just physics, Pastor Dan. That's, that's just science, right? Right, right. How, however, you mentioned something. When we, when we take a hard look at what uh, they are doing and who they are and what the belief system is, I already said that it's a, a quasi-religious, you know, belief. They right. have, the, in a statue, the Hindu god Shiva at the front of the facility. Folks, if you don't know who Shiva is, Shiva is the destroyer of worlds, is, is its title. And it's, what it does is it, 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 it destroys worlds and it remakes them in its own image. Now, Pastor Dan, you take everything we just covered, and and that, then you just tell me that they did this, this this weird kind of religious supernatural dance in front of this facility. Yeah, my friend, we are, are toying with, or not we, they, they are toying with things that they do not understand, and it's not only going to come back to bite them. I dare say, it will come back to bite all of us. Okay, let me break in. We're, we got less than a minute before breaking, and, and we can come back talk a little more about this and some other things. But um, what's your? Give them your website, please, real quick. Sure, it's DanielHoldings.com. www.DanielHoldingsWithNest.com. Okay, and can you find your books over there? That's right, and you know, I, I'm reminisced. Uh, there's a, a package special on my books. If you want all my books, there's a package on there. You get 5% off from Pastor Dan because I know money's tight and your audience is important. If you order those books on my website, I will give your, your audience an additional 10% off. So it'll be a total of 50% off the full package. Uh, but you have to tell me in the, the PayPal directions that you, you heard me on Pastor Dan's show. Okay, well, we got to go. We'll be back in three minutes. Terrific. Dan will be 
right back. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for one four. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Pastor Dan Catlin, and you're listening to Messiah's Branch Prophecy Hour on the American Voice Radio Network. 
Folks, please remember to pray tonight about a donation for our work with the homeless and poor from our mission church in Wichita, Kansas. Well, of course, the homeless are poor, but we're also talking about the poor people that come to us from all around the city looking for things like clothing, food, Bibles. They're looking for the gospel. They're looking for miracles. They're looking for first aid. There's so many things that they come looking for. So it's not just some old homeless person that we're taking care of pushing a buggy. In fact, that's not really the picture of most homeless people, nor the drunken bum on the street corner. That's not a picture of a homeless person. We're living in an economy where uh, moms, dads, and, and family are living in the street. So these people don't fit that old-time picture that you have of the homeless and poor. This is a much different thing. They're just like you and me. In fact, I hear that about every uh, middle-class American, so to speak, is only a couple of paychecks away from losing their house and losing where they live. So pray about it. Why do so many people come to us for help? Though? Why are we different? We'll love. That's the first answer. And then we treat them as family. Um, we give them relationships. By giving relationships, we're able to help them. We get on a one-to-one basis with them. And second, and beyond that, we don't have any set guidelines like, guidelines like programs. The only programs I have are radio programs. And notice I do call this programs and not shows. Shows are something that people uh, do to put on a show. Um, entertainment. Well, you know what? I'm here to educate you. We're here to educate you, to help you. And so it is called a program. Anyway, people just walk in the door and they ask for help, and that is the rule. And if we don't have the way to fill the need, well, then we try and pray it in. Uh, We're not always successful, but a large percent of the percentage of the time we are. This is why even the agencies tell their employees about the Father's Little Mission Church. You see, when their guidelines stop them from helping, they send people to us. People who have millions of dollars in their budget send people to a place that, what, really has no budget? We are the very last hope for so many, and we're all responsible to care one for another, as we are our brother's keepers. All donations, no matter what size, helps. And the Father notices all donations that come from where? Your heart. You can donate online or by mailing a check or money order. And you can find all this information at prophecyhour.com. Prophecyhour.com. Or simply call me at 620-878-4682. 620-878-4682. And now we're talking about the Haldrian Collider, which I think can open up a, a portal to another dimension. In fact, it could rip the fabric of the planet. But we're talking with Daniel Holdings about that. He's an author, speaker, researcher, and radio talk show host on the Hebrew Nation. Are you still with me, Daniel? I'm here, Pastor Dan, and thank you again for having me. Yeah, amen. Well, you know, some of the the effects that this uh, collider could have, um, am I wrong? in saying this, um, could actually cause some of the, the effects that we see in the book of Revelation, like where the, uh, you know, the earth gets scorched and so on and so forth. What do you think? Well, you know, that, that is an interesting thing. You know, you, you look at so many things in prophecy, and you wonder how these things could happen. Of course, people have written book after book about this over the years. Uh, and one of the books that is probably the best-known 
that I, I read when I was uh, just, in fact, I wasn't even a believer that I thought it was science fiction, was a late great planet Earth who talked about all this interesting stuff. But even back then, past again, we didn't have the science, we didn't have the technology that we have now. You mentioned that you thought this was a stargate or a portal that is opening up a gateway to another dimension. And it is, in fact, one of the things I talk about in my book, because in that book, in Three Days in the Belly of the Belly of the Beast, uh, the, the main character is indeed trying to do that. Remember I said that I wondered why you know, the father thought it was so important to put it in, into the Torah code. What Bryce Cooper, the hero, does, he wasn't a hero back then, but what he does is he is trying to bridge this gap between the seen world, the 3D world that we live in, and this other dimension. And, you know, the Lord gave me this revelation about how things are laid out uh, in, in our own world, and I, I relate that in, in that book. But I took that, that thought process and, and built this book on it. But lo and behold, when I took a step back and began to see all these things that were happening after I wrote the book, they are, in fact, Pastor Dan, trying to open up a gateway to the supernatural, is what I call it. Uh, yeah. And somebody told me, actually this was, Equilla told me this, he said, he said, Daniel, he said, if you think about the Large Hadron Collider as a main lock, and if you can unlock a main lock, you can unlock all the other locks in a, in a, in a system. Well, Pastor Dan, that is exactly what they are trying to do. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is a portal to where? See, they think that they're going to see a parallel universe or, or uh, an adjoining dimension. But where, indeed, are they trying to open up a doorway to? See, that's the question. They don't even understand this. Because they don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in the Father. They don't believe in the God of creation, right? They don't believe him. So, so they, they think they're don't just going to the devil. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. They're seen. And remember, the word says that Lucifer masquerades as an angel of light, right? So they see this being on their screen and it's it's lit up and it's an entity, and they go, oh, wow, gee, let's see if we can talk to him. They have no idea that they are talking to a demon. They have no idea that they want to open up the very gates of the abyss. Yeah. Now, that, yeah, absolutely. that should, make all, of us, that should Listen, make all of us. You know, very a, a few years ago, my friend Stan Johnson at the Prophecy Club did a, a program and he did a DVD on it, and it was, it was good, it, but there was some more information out there. But, you know, he talked about, he called it Stargates, Wormholes, and the Bottomless Pit. And we talked about it. And, you know, while I was convinced that this was important, you know, there just wasn't as much information as there is out there right now. But, again, I'll, I'll, I'll refer back to that. After I spoke with you yesterday, um, I went and did some more research. And uh, you know what? I was really getting, uh, I, for lack of a better word, kind of weirded out by the time I got done looking at all everything I looked at last night. 
And uh, uh, because it's re- it's reality, you understand what I'm saying? That's what weirded me out, is that it's reality. I I saw a way in this portal that, hey, wait a minute, there's a way that the bottomless pit could possibly be, or these demons from another dimension could all of a sudden be all over our planet. You know what I mean? This yeah. is a, a portal for the, for the devil to come through, you know? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, Yeshua went down. It said, the word says that Yeshua went down, and he stole the keys of hell and death. Right? People say, you know, he set us free from from sin. Right? That's not true. It says he stole the keys of hell and death. Right? So that we don't have to die eternally. Right? <laughs> but there were, the point is that there are keys to hell. Right? Now, where else are there keys? Think back to your eschatological, your eschatological framework, right? Think back to Revelation. Where else do you see keys in the Bible? Well, I mean, you see the key of David. Well, that's true, but you see, the Bible says that the abyss has keys. Well, and right, at the end yeah. of the age, at the end of the age, that they're let they're let out, that they get these keys yeah, and they're, they're let out. Let out. Well, who knows? They, uh, look, 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 and I'm going to jump ahead of you on this. I know that's where you're going. Well, who's to say that, that the Father isn't allowing this to allow these this to be opened up, you know? Because he allows, well, allows yeah. or disallows everything. Well, that's true, and he's not caught off guard or surprised by anything that's going on. But for, for that's the father. But for their motivation, right? For the enemy's motivation, he thinks that he can usurp the father's plan if he just kind of moves ahead a little bit and gets the keys and starts wreaking hack, havoc over the world. And he's using these scientists who think they're so smart that they can do whatever they want to do. And I'm going to use this phrase that they can do whatever they set their mind to do. Now, where do we remember hearing that phrase in the word before? Oh, gee, we don't know. <laughs> it is the Tower of Babel, and that is exactly what Elohim said. You know, we don't stop them, they'll do whatever they set their mind to do, and, and so God put a stop to it. And, and these people think that they can do whatever they set their mind to do, and they're pur- purposing to do that, but they are playing with fire, they have no idea who they're messing with, because as you said, they don't believe in the devil, right? That's just some religious stuff that they don't even, it's not scientific, right? <laughs> but they were playing <laughs> right into his hand. Yeah, we're going to find out how scientific it is. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'm serious, you know, any way you look at it, even if you took this off of a religious scale, so to speak, and you looked at it, you know, they could blow a hole, they could blow the planet up, you know, they've already caused an earthquake, clearly. Um, you know, they could tear a hole in the, the outer atmosphere so that we would get burnt up. And they could lead, just because they see beings from someplace else, doesn't mean they're going to come over here and just be peaceful, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, oh, they're going to be benevolent. Let's let them in, right? Okay. Next story. 
You know, <laughs> really, really, you know, uh, what, they have this, guys, they, which brings me, what is this book? book? We are might as well now. I want to hear about the, this for a second. Um, since you're working on a new nonfiction, nonfiction book called Mad Scientists and Other Wackadoos, are you going to address these people in this? Well, you know, uh, yeah, well, that's only one of the things uh, that, that are going to be in that book. But, you know, the... And CERN is, is this whole different thing with, you know, physics and all that stuff. It's just quantum physics and theoretical physics. It's all this crazy stuff that they do. But we have practical, theoretical things that are going on in our world today, Pastor Dan, that, that are affecting our own lives. You know, yeah. they are messing with, geneticists are messing with our genome. They are trying to change our DNA. And if you don't believe me, if you have a daughter that is uh, between the age of, I don't know, let's say 18 to well, a newborn, right, there is a vaccine that they came out with just uh, or, uh, it was about three or four years ago. And I forget the name of it. I'm just talking off the top of my head. This vaccine, it comes in four different shots. It is designed to vaccinate some, uh, a woman from cervical cancer. Right? That's what it's purpose is. I love the shot. But in, but in order to do that, they have to change your child's DNA. If you read the fine print, they are changing your kid's DNA. The things that we eat today, GMO foods, maybe the, the chemtrails that we see, these things are changing our DNA. So they are just tinkering with the genome. Now, if that wasn't weird enough, there is... Um, there have been reports of late, there was just last week, the Chinese have admitted that they are changing the DNA in an embryo. That they're changing a baby's DNA to make it like you want it to be even before it's born. Now, that is crazy. But that is not as crazy as the reports of using the DNA from three people to make a baby. Right. That, that's crazy. That that report just came out about two 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 months ago, and then there's also a report. One more. There's also a report where they're using the DNA from two people of the same sex to make a baby. Really? Now, Pat? Yeah. Okay. Pastor Dan, I gotta say, say, I gotta say something. Okay, let's go with this. Number one. You know, we find one of the very first principles, or I call it a law. You can call it what you want. It, it's in, so it's in, it's in the Torah, so we can call it Torah, which is the teachings. You know, in Genesis, in the very first, when he talks about the creation of the world, he's, uh, the, it, it talks about everything after its own kind, everything after its own kind, and it was good. You know, and it's and it goes on and on about that, and then you get up to Genesis six, and you see everything's not after its own kind. The DNA was messed up because of the the fallen angels that came down, and that's really why the world was destroyed um, because of all the evilness that they brought. In fact, Noah was considered uh, good in his generations, meaning that he didn't have an alien, uh, not an alien, but a, a fallen angel in a woodpile. He had clean generation. So messing with DNA, that's the point. It's against the father. All of these that abominations. Is, go ahead. 
That is exactly right. If you look at the original language, it says that his his genes were he was genetically pure. He didn't have Nephilim DNA in his lineage. So therefore, because this is why this is important. Okay, this is crazy stuff, right? We're just talking crazy stuff. I don't know. If you go to Genesis six, you'll see it for yourself, right? Now, if you're the devil. If you were the devil and you want, you knew that your time was short, I mean, if it's 5,000 years, it's still short to him in eternity. Now, if you were the devil and you knew your time was short, would you not try to intercept the birth of Messiah by corrupting the genome? Yeah, amen. Because remember, David's DNA goes all the way back to Noah, and it goes all the way up to the Messiah. Amen. So if they could have... Corrupted the genome way back there, we would not have Yeshua Hamashiach. Yeah, not amen. like he is. Amen. So there is, there is. A, so what are they doing now, Daniel? Well, it, look, it, I didn't say it. Yeshua said it in Matthew twenty-four. He said, "When when you see these things happen, it will be as in the days of Noah." Does that mean that it's going to flood? The people are. Were sinning and they were doing all this. Well, yeah, they were sinning. We're still sinning. They're still sinning. That's not what he was talking about. Pastor Dan, he's talking about this stuff. He's talking about what you just said. When we would see science begin to try to corrupt our DNA and do all this other stuff, and folks, I hate to tell you, but I think, I don't know, I don't have any way to prove this, but I think that this is Nephilim technology. This, they got this technology from fallen angels, and we were just pastor dead, we're doing the whole thing again, and, uh, and sometimes mankind drives me crazy because we are falling right into their trap. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And they, they've got it to accept, you know, for, we were, you know, uh, the, my last program today, I was talking with a, a guy who wrote the book Crimes of the Educators, and it was talking about how they they corrupted the teachings of the children and getting them to where they're at now, away from Judeo-Christian teaching. And that actually has led to why all this is acceptable. And and so it's been going on a long time, but now it's all acceptable. I mean, the millennium, or I guess you call them millennials, don't you, the children, you know, they don't know enough about this because they don't have the right and wrong teaching in them. And so they don't care. You know, and people don't care. And so it's right there. It's predominant. All these abominations. You realize what's going to happen if they do same-sex marriage in this country by the Supreme Court? It's going to tear this country apart. Um, And so we're in for it. I mean, you know, we're here. There's the point. We have arrived. Everybody keeps waiting until when the end times. The end times are here. Don't you believe, brother? I think we've arrived. We we are so far into the birth things right now, folks. If you don't understand that we are in the birth phase, that, that, that the, the the distance between those pains are increasing, then you're not paying attention because the, it, it is like Pastor Dan. I don't have to tell you. I go to the news and I cannot keep up with it, and I I I keep up with the news. I mean, it's what I do. I can't follow it fast enough because it's just. One thing after another thing after another thing. You know, you were talking about um, uh, DNA. You were, this is the other thing that, that, you know, it says that that they corrupted all of flesh, right? That's what it says right. in Genesis. 
Now, interestingly enough, one of the other things in that book that I'm working on are um, hybrids and uh, transhumanism. They are mixing, you're, you're, you're right, it's, the word says that everything is made after its kind. But we think, we're, we as being human beings, think we're so smart, they are mixing the DNA of creatures that do not belong together. Uh, so you get the dogs that are glowing green because they mix with jellyfish. You, you have pigs that have noses on them. I, it's just crazy stuff that they're doing. And people, people don't even understand what they're doing. They just go back, they go to work. And, but, you know, we see this technology, and we see these things happening past the end, and there's this technological element of things that are going crazy. But, brother, I am telling you, true to the name of the, the second book, the title that the Lord gave me, As the Darkness Falls, darkness is falling on our world. And there is a spiritual element to what is going on here. And those people that you saw doing that dance in front of CERN, this is the spiritual element of things. I mean, you, you want to hear something crazy. When did all this start, Daniel? I mean, you're just talking crazy. It is crazy stuff, right? But you know all that talk, Pastor Dan, about 2012 and... December 24 was going to be in the world, and I can't, right. I can't say no. They, they don't get to pick the end of the world. <laughs> Yahweh is in charge, and they don't get to pick the end of the world. But I said at the same time, this is a different year. Things are happening here that you cannot see. And in 2012, there were uh, these Mayan, I'm not making this stuff up, there were these Mayan priests that came to the United States. There were 13 of them with 13 crystal skulls. I'm not making it up. Go back and read it. It's on the Internet. You'll find it for yourself. It was, it was widely publicized because the news was carrying this kind of thing. And they were doing a ceremony at key places throughout the United States to what? To open up portals. Lord. That's what their stated goals were. They stopped in St. Louis. Why, that's not far from Ferguson. And they said all across the country. They walked across the country, and they, they were doing a ceremony the very last place that they did this ceremony before they went back down to the Mayan temple down in Mexico. The City of Angels in Los Angeles to open up portals. And it wasn't very long after that. No, nothing happened. They didn't do anything. Folks, if you look back at the turmoil, that's, turmoil that started in our nation and in the world, I dare say, you have to look back to 2012 because something happened and darkness started falling. And you can say that it's because of a geopolitical situation. You can say it's because of our president. You can say it's because of politics. You can say it's because uh, the Republicans are never getting done. Man, you can say whatever you want to say. The fact is that it's a spiritual issue. And when you combine that with the technology that is going on today, Pastor Dan, you hit it right on the head. These are, in fact, the end times. This is the end of the age. We are in the birth pains. And I dare say that those things are ramping up, and before the end of the year, you're going to see things that are going to, that's going to make your head spin. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, you know, one of the things that you just barely brushed on was transhumanism, you know, and, the, and you know, the singularity of, of our interaction with machines. Um, there's a, a whole lot of things that uh, actually I've been looking for somebody to talk to uh, with about it, um, and you may just be that person. Um, we, uh, we ought to do a program on all that, um, some of that other technology things, but... Um, I, I do appreciate you being on with me. Um, tell us a, a little more about your website and your books. you got about two minutes or a minute and a half to give final thoughts, and uh, then we'll say okay till next time. We'll do it again. Okay. Uh, thank you, Pastor Dan. The, the website is danielholdings.com. That's www.danielholdings. And I'm dead serious, folks. If you order a package on my website, uh, it, it already has a 5% discount because you're a, a, a Pastor Dan listener. I will give you another 10% for a total of 15% on that site. Uh, but you have to order from my website. I don't have any control over Amazon or any place else. Uh, I can only do what I can do on my website. Uh, and if you, if you, in the PayPal directions, if you tell me that you heard about me on Pastor Dan's show or you send me an email to the contact page, I will, in fact, uh, reverse the charges and give it to you as a rebate or refund off of your order. On that, on that website, you'll also find news. You'll find previous uh, interviews that I've had or shows that I've done, that kind of thing. And uh, there's a lot of good information. But more importantly, just like uh, Pastor Dan said, and I, well, I appreciate you so much and the things that you do uh, for the They don't even understand what you do. Because I know it takes, I, I know what it takes me. I know it takes you hours and hours and hours to do what you do. And so I so much appreciate you. Like Pastor Dan's website, there's a bunch of good stuff on there for you to uh, to, to to think about and to, to to see. There's background on my books. There's uh, interesting videos. There's all kinds of things. So feel free to, to go there. And as far as my my closing thoughts, folks, this is not the time to be playing church. I'm not talking bad about church. I'm not talking bad about any one place. What I'm telling, telling you is this is the time to make sure that you are on your face before the Lord and that you are talking to him honestly, that we are repenting on a regular basis, not once, on a regular basis, that we are transparent with him, that we are tuned to his voice, that when he says go left or go right, we know his voice. Yeshua said, my sheep know my voice, and another they will not follow. This is a time when we need to know his voice because it's getting very, very dangerous. Okay, amen. i got to get you out of here, brother. I've only got a minute left myself. So you be blessed, and we'll talk again, I'm sure. We'll stay in contact. Thank you, Pastor. All right, Thanks. be blessed. Thanks for being on. Well, folks, that was Daniel Holdings. Go over and check his site out. We've got a lot of good stuff. We'll get him back on again. And send him an email. Tell him you like the program. We must remember there is only one God. He is your father. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His son is Yeshua, Hamashiach. He gave his life for repentant sins. He rose after three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And through him, and only through him, is the way to the Father. Remember, always, always, always be a blessing to others. Pray about supporting Wichita Mission Church or Radio Airtime, which is both about the same thing. Pray about it. Lord our God, Father, King Universe, asking Yeshua HaMashiach's name, that the Father blesses and keeps you, and his face shines upon you, and is gracious to you, and gives you peace. Until next Thursday, this is Pastor Dan saying goodbye and shalom. 
just heard the Messiah's Branch broadcast featuring Pastor Dan. To contact Dan on the internet, go to messiahsbranch.org. To write to Dan, send a note to Messiah's Branch, 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Tune in next time for the Messiah's Branch. provided strength. Indeed, the chemical compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. The extra benefit of thyme herb is that it soothes the nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for time, tincture, and tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International 704-875-8010 or online at thepowerherbs.com. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. If you have a heart condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. 
Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom resident herbalist Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. We're here on Herb Talk and we're going to empower you. That's what we like to do. Magical Engineer Frank and I are ready to roll. Thanks for joining us on American Voice Radio. Uh, we're going to be talking about infectious bacteria today to the plague level. We've talked about some of this before, but we have some new developments that make it even more important to uh, revisit the topic. Um, and we're going to be also talking about um, how you can deflect a lot of these uh, pathogens, these diseases. So we've got lots to talk about, a lot of empowering information. And um, if you hear the show and you want to share the information with friends and family, I know American Voice Radio will archive the show later, and so will our, our website at thepowerherbs.com so that you can uh, look it up by date and topic and uh, share it with friends and family. Uh, we do have a quack report, but before we get to all that great stuff, Big salute and semper fi to righteous men and women in uniform. Oh yeah, we were lifting all of America up in prayer and seeking Lord's face, and, and it's His will. But we we still going to ask. We're going to still ask for righteous leadership throughout this country, and uh, that's what we should be doing. We should plead the, to the Lord for justice and truth, as Isaiah 59 instructs. So, um, and you know, faithful prayer can save the sick, and also the righteous prayer availeth much. So, and it draws you closer to the Creator so you can have that wonderful experience and relationship. So, mind the time, it grows short. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. Oh, thank you, Frank. What do we have here? Oh, uh, university students, where is this? Um, uh, let's see, uh, uh, I guess it's deeper into the, the topic here. University students, oh, if the Netherlands. They're working on this. Um, K, they're working in conjunction with KLM employees. They're designing this app that will allow flight attendants to identify problem passengers. You know, passengers that are anxious, passengers that are ill, and so forth. So it's called a Flight Beat app, 
and it will help monitor physical and mental well-being of passengers through their heart rate sensors that are going to be built into the seats. And uh, the app is still in, in concept mode, but they do have the sensor technology already, and it's looked at. It's being looked at also by car manufacturers. I guess you know if you're if you're having a heart attack and you have on OnStar in your car, the two can uh, I guess uh, help you out. Uh, seats are monitored by cabin crew with the app. Uh, they can just log in and they can actually see an overview of all the passengers and all their seats. And, you know, it's sort of like Houston monitoring astronauts, I guess. They know what they know what you're thinking, I guess, based on your heart rate. Mm. Moving along in the quack report, um, California's drought is uh, continuing to get worse, and it's um, – Causing an infestation of rodents. So we're going to be tapping into this a little bit for the main segment for the first half hour of the show. But rats are coming out of the woodwork. They're coming out of their hiding places because they're looking for water. So they're coming out uh, uh, into parks to steal water from um, uh, everywhere. Your water fountain that's dripping. What? Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.